to Weird Seas Besides the Goldmine, me, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Mr. Richard Burton on the new and improved Third Night Cinema Weird Seas Network, now on Podbean. Get it off, eh? <laughs> oh my God. What a week we've had, right? Yeah, it's it's been a hell of a crazy one. But, you know, we survived. We're still here. Whew. Okay, let's go. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> I will shit this one out. <laughs> Nobody knows what we're talking about, even. Uh, you're listening to Weird Things Inside the Goldmine, <laughs> your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Mr. Richard Burton on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, good evening, and welcome to, I'm going to have to guess it's the sixth episode of the 13th season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, both of us having been quite beleaguered of late, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Oh, jeez, I should mention something else, by the way. You know what I saw the other day that was really good by accident? Mm. And I'd never seen it before. It was early morning, we were doing something, I forget. And I flipped past that movies channel, you know, it's like one of those cheapy things you get off the satellite or whatever. Mm. And they were playing something called Castle Keep. I don't know if you ever saw this. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bert, yeah, Bert it's Lancaster. A, yes, it's a Sidney Pollock movie, yeah. and it had Jean-Pierre Almond, uh, Peter Falk, and Patrick O'Neill from Chamber of Horrors. So I was already halfway sold there just from the cast. But it's like so, I mean, I'm not so sure about the point of the film at the mm-hmm. end, but it was so wonderfully decadent and amusing. And the whole thing was basically, Peter Falk was like this, he was the cook, but in this military detachment, I think they actually were walking wounded you know, over in Europe during the World War II. And somehow they wound up in this castle. And the guy's like, oh yeah, I'll let you in. And there was this whole weird thing where the castle was fucking gorgeous. And they had all this, it was so decadent, all this wonderful artwork, and they had like an own chapel, and the furniture was like all antiques, and you have like Pierre Falk putting his feet up on the tables and crap, and he was totally obsessed with sex. He was like fucking like the baker's wife or something behind her back, and everything he says is some kind of weird sex joke. And you had Patrick O'Neill was like this, and not really a feat, but he was a real art historian, mm. art lover, an esthete really. And somehow he wound up in the military, I guess just because, you know, he got drafted or whatever. And then you had Lancaster, who was this one-eyed, uh, in my patch, like a pirate, and he was the head of the division who was banging what turned out to be, they thought it was his niece or something, but it turned out to be Armand's wife, who actually wanted this because, you know, he, like, wanted to have an heir, and he let the Germans bang her beforehand, and so now I guess, you know, he finally got what his wish. And in the meantime, the whole thing, you know, they're going to town, they're going to whorehouses, you know, all this stuff's going down, they're screwing around doing weird crap to each other, like this guy, for some reason, falls in love with a... I don't know, it was a Volkswagen Beetle or a Trabant or something, and he's always polishing it or whatever. So they deliberately get drunk one night and shove it into the lake, and it won't sink, and they're shooting at it. Just insane, like, it was like the Dirty Dozen done by some decadent esthete. It was so beautiful. It was visually gorgeous, really weird. It was totally... Not just anti-war, but it was very much a counterculture film. Like I, I think I said, there does. I mean, Kelly's Heroes is what I was thinking of. Yeah, it would be good double bill with the ninth configuration, actually. 
True. True. That's another strange one. Yeah. But it was the most bizarre, I say, excuse for a war film I've ever seen. I loved it. <laughs> I don't know how well it works as whatever else, but I would put it up there in my top three favorite war films. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I've flown by you a few times, uh, you know, Sidney Pollack mm-hmm. as, as somebody, well, both Sidney's, Lumet and Pollack separately, mm-hmm. of course, who've done interesting work. And yes, uh, they have. I mentioned Burke a number of times, Lancaster, and... Um, mm-hmm. He's done some weird movies, man. Yeah, he was actually the least impressive here because you know how Burt Lancaster is. He's not like Gregory Peck, block of wood, but he's very you know stalwart and whatever. He hasn't changed he much. Is, he is, but the... then he he'll do something to blow you away, like the swimmer. Did you ever see mm-hmm. that? Yes, I did. That's a strange <laughs> fucking movie. It was a weird movie. I'm like, what the fuck is this about? All right. Yeah, yeah. Else? See, so yeah, he he really digs into counterculture pictures. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, something but, yeah. to think about. Anyway, back to Richard Burton. Yes, so Richard Walter Jenkins Jr. was born in November of 1925 in Wales to an avowedly hard-drinking coal miner and, get this, a barmaid at a bar called The Miner's Arms, which is where they met in the first place. Can you get any more British? <laughs> Burton, <laughs> Burton referred to dear old dad as a 12 pints a day man Ooch. who would vanish for, he'd vanish for weeks at a time on gambling and drinking sprees. Holy shit, you can see where he got it from, huh? <laughs> He claimed his mother was, quote, very religious, despite the crowd she catered to and married into. But his recollections are kind of suspect, as far as I'm concerned, because she died when he was only two, supposedly due to, quote, neglect of hygiene, which he says wasn't because she was filthy, but due to all the coal dust she had so much secondhand exposure to, mm-hmm. which is very possible. Uh, you know, black leg miners and all that stuff. What do they call that? Uh, black lung? It's, it's it's very similar to popcorn lung. Uh, you yeah, yeah. So, he grew up under the home of his older sister and her hubby, therefore, alongside their two daughters in a rough-edged steel mill town. He left school to work in the mines after his sister's husband fell ill, again presumably due to working conditions, before joining the RAF, Mm -hmm. where he was unable to become a pilot due to poor eyesight, and he wound up a navigator, though he seems to have been more concerned with acting both under their ages and in civilian terms throughout, being adopted by his former acting tutor and schoolmaster, Philip Burton, during this period, and hence his name change. He's not actually a Burton, he's a Jenkins. So, he also landed a role in a play starring Sir John Gielgud, who took a bit of a shine to him and brought him as part of the touring company stateside, where Burton wound up winning a World Theatre Award for it, before Gilgood directed him in a couple further plays, and he began landing Hollywood film roles, most significantly The Robe, which not only kicked off his proper filmic career, but entangled him with his equally blowsy and hard-drinking several-time wife Liz Taylor, <laughs> and their long-running tempestuous relationship. Yes. He actually met her at a release party for that film. It's been somewhat openly acknowledged that Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is very much analogous to their long-run, rather rocky relationship. Apparently, by the mid-70s, Burton was a chain smoker and, quote, knocking back three or four bottles of hard liquor a day, making him a credible rival to our pal Oliver Reed, an even yeah. more volatile and hard-drinking personality who we also devoted a show to. I did enjoy hearing that he poo-pooed all that shit about Liz once being the, quote, most beautiful woman in the world, openly acknowledging that, quote, she has lovely eyes, yes, but she has a double chin, an overdeveloped chest, and is rather short in the leg. Indeed. So, again, I am Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Hi, Lewis. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm glad we're doing a, a show on Richard Burton, because... You'd asked her for a long time. <laughs> I've asked for a long time. And, you know, um, yeah, you know, you, you, you mentioned Oliver Reed. I was going to, but you, you, you beat me to it. <laughs> um, but where Oliver was barely functional... Yes. ...in some of his uh, actually filmed uh, roles... <laughs> Yes. And some of them were Lee Marvin, and they both were akin. Richard Burton seemed to barrel through most things 
aside from the occasional picture, which we will get to. Um, <laughs> with gusto. With gusto, yes. He's like, I, I'm going to do this anyway. But I, I was always really impressed. The delivery came from all those years of working the boards. You know, he, mm-hmm. you know once you know, he's, he's doing hard working in the theater. And, you know, back in those days, things weren't amplified. You used your voice. Yes. Pre-amplification. You used your voice. That's why a lot of these guys, James Mason. Mm-hmm. Mason, Richard Harris. Uh... Richard Harris. A lot of these guys. Hell, probably even Tom Jones, another fellow Welshman. I was thinking um, of Tom Jones all along. I was like, well, you know what? It's, I'm not going to say anything because he's a singer, but yes. I've seen him do because... Dylan Thomas on his Christmas specials, and I was like, yeah, yeah it's very Bertonian. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you got to remember, these guys were starting out. There weren't like amplifiers and mics. They probably started out in clubs and, 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 and small theaters, so they had to play to the rafter. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Hell, Tony Bennett did that when he when he started out. Yes. Um, one of the things Tony, I saw Tony twice in my life. Oh, lucky. Okay. As a performer, and one of the things Tony Bennett always did in one of his shows, he used to do a throwback to when he started out. Mm-hmm. So you would you would poo poo that right away, like I don't give a fuck. But no, so here's where I'm making the connection here, because when Tony started out, it was back back before he met Sinatra, before he met all these guys. Yes. And he's playing theaters with very little or no amplification. So they would turn off everything and he'd just sing to the to the mm-hmm. theater. Yep. Sing to you. And it was very impressive. So that's the connection I'm making. You know, Burton and all these guys we just name checked, you know, when they were starting out in the theater and they're doing soliloquies. They're doing hardcore language, Shakespearean style. Mm-hmm. And and um, that's a lot of mindfuck shit too. Yeah, that's a lot to remember. Oh yeah. And boom, they got they they know they weren't bellowing. <laughs> we we know who the bellowers are. <laughs> <laughs> we did shows on at least one of them. <laughs> of them in the show over the years. Oliver Reed became a bellower. Yes. Um, Pacino. <laughs> but you yeah you know I like Al but, I love but Al. sometimes. I love... Al got to a point where he's like, you know, <laughs> even Christopher Walken, in his own way, mm-hmm. became a bellower. Yep. But so Brian guys... Blessed. <laughs> huh? Brian Blessed. <laughs> oh, Brian Blessed, bless his heart. Um, well, yeah, but he's he's another guy, another hard drinking guy from that crowd, isn't he? <laughs> yes, he is. Yes, he is. Um. So I'm sorry, we got the real guys. I hope you like the show so far. It's going, it's going great guns, actually. I actually am jealous of you just for seeing Tony Bennett twice. When I, by the time I was able to, because he came around once when I got into him back in the '90s after that whole MTV Unplugged thing, and all of a sudden they re-released Snowfall, and he did that Family Christmas and all that jazz. But the one time I remember, the you know, in recent history, that he came around before he was you know old and I don't want to say getting senile, but you know before he was on his last legs. They wanted, it was some kind of benefit that he was doing, and they wanted like 500 bucks a ticket. I'm like, whoa, I'm sorry, I love you, but no. <laughs> but I am jealous. I'm very pleased. It's the same thing like Sinatra. Uh, three or four years before his last tour, mm-hmm. I saw him at Radio City, and uh, I was just reliving this with a lady I worked with. And, um, cause, oh, she listened to our Sinatra show. <laughs> 
Yes, this lady I worked with listened to the Sinatra show, and she goes, she never saw Frank. And I said, well, I did. Yeah. And Shirley MacLaine opened. Uh, it was supposed to be somebody else. I forgot who it was, but she backed out. But it was Shirley who, who subbed. And she said, how was it? I said, the only time I ever saw him, he was, he had a, a stool to sit on, mm-hmm. a mic stand. Frank Jr. led the orchestra. Mm-hmm. And he had another stool with a big bottle of Jack. Yep. <laughs> and, and you know what? It was fun. Yeah. But anyway... So uh, anyway, <laughs> this is what we do, folks. Yes, we definitely. Uh, that's why I always say it's, it's kind of like a my dinner of Andre of film criticism, because and, and we go. Why and, haven't we been nominated for that stupid award yet? Oh mm-hmm. God! I, you know, it's all who you, you know. know. I'm talking about. Yes, I do. It's yeah. all who you know, and unfortunately, you know, I do re- interact with a lot of these people, and they they know who I am, even if they don't want to admit it. One or two of them I actually spoke with on my other show, Third Eye Cinema. There was one or two of them that were supposed to be with us on, uh, had agreed to coming on Correct. on our show for a couple of them actually. They, would, they didn't just want one; they wanted to be involved with three of them, and that was their suggestion. And, you know, things just don't happen sometimes. So, yeah, I mean, we're kind of like the, I'd say the black sheep of the, the critical uh, whatever. But, yeah, and those of you out there, if you do know anybody that's involved with that stuff, please do nominate us. Please do. If yes, you're please. interested in doing a Blu-ray commentaries, here we are. Because we know our shit and we do a good job. And I listen to a lot of podcasts, so I can tell you that with possibly the exception of the completely unrelated but also extremely amusing Defenders Dialogue, if anybody heard that, Brian Keene and uh, Christopher Golden, there is nothing like this show out there. It just doesn't exist. There, no, so. there isn't. Uh, although my, uh, there's a few I like. Uh, my friend da- oh, yeah. Damien Glonick has a show. I forgot what it's called. I'm sorry, Damien. I'm not saying there's no good podcasts. No, I'm no, saying there's nothing I, like us. My, my, another one of my, uh, Jill, Jill Van has a show with her husband. The, those shows are like three hours long. I'm like, they're nice. You know, you got to remember, we try, we try to keep this down. You know, yes. As as much as we over talk, you know, that's why you come in with your expert editing. That's it, because they're very edited. To be honest with you, yeah. I mean, ever since we left Blog Talk, because Blog Talk that was a lot of live stuff. So uh, Blog Talk was live stuff, and they were like. Four hours long. Holy shit. Well, we couldn't help it. That's why the Franco's in like eight episodes. I don't know. <laughs> it was actually three, I think. Yeah. I know, still. But you know. So anyway, back to Richard. Yeah. So I will ignore, unless you need to, the first couple of things that he appeared in, usually bit parts, Last Days of Dome, and now Barabbas, something called Waterfront, mm-hmm. The Home With No Name, Green Girl, The Rushes, My Cousin Rachel, which apparently he got a Golden Globe for, but... Where I was going to start was the Desert Rats in 1953. I, I'm fine with that. I just wanted to mention my cousin Rachel is one of those. It's funny, you know, because of his. Uh, it's 1952, mm-hmm. and it's one of those early Hitchcock-related films without it without it being a Hitchcock film. It's also based on the. I hope I don't murder her name. Daphne Du Maurier. Oh yes. Story, mm-hmm. and it's about a guy who. Plans revenge against a woman who believes murdered his cousin, but of course, like in Vertigo, he becomes addicted to her. Really young-looking Burton in that. It's a good film. Olivia De Havilland, who actually looked kind of oomphy for quite some time. Um, <laughs> it was well known, but it was also a bit stagey. And having not been—I'm going to be really sure on this—having not been based on a stage play, to my knowledge. I don't know why it's always comes across as stagey. Also, it's black or white, so that might be... Okay, Deserats. 
So, yes, uh, James Mason of Lolita, Georgie Girl, Cold Sweat, then my side contract, a.k.a. The Destructors, Last of Sheila, Mandingo, and Salem's Lot, from our Stanley Kubrick, Charlotte Rampling, Charles Bronson, Michael Caine, Richard Benjamin, Tony Perkins, Black Exploitation, and Toby Hooper shows, respectively, is somehow supposed to fill in as Erwin Rommel, probably the only German general considered with apparently mutual respect by his opponents, Montgomery, Eisenhower, and Patton in World War II. In this surprisingly boring war film from Robert Wise of The Haunt, our Michael Crichton shows The Andromeda Strain, and our William Shatner shows Star Trek The Motion Picture. While there was obviously a lot more money put into this than the later Bitter Victory, given all the explosions and such on screen, it's a whole hell of a lot more dull, with the bulk of the proceedings being about Burton's unlikely military promotions over some recalcitrant Alsi troops succeeding in the North African campaign thanks to the support of his cowardly, drunken former schoolmaster, who he protects from the front lines time and time again. Yay? It kind of sucks, particularly by comparison with the other Burton War films like Bitter Victory or Where Eagles Dare. So, what's your take on this one? Um, it's interesting. There, there was a, there were a couple of pictures around this time period where mid fifties to the early sixties, and then revived again uh, late sixties, where uh, World War II films were uh, kind of like in vogue. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I think they wanted to, I think they wanted to take. Richard Burton, well known for the dramas and the uh, Shakespearean roles he's done on stage. I think they want to amplify kind of up the, you know, somebody decided, let's try action. Mm-hmm. You know? And while he's not bad in it, it's, it's, uh, it could have been better. Yeah, that's it's, for sure. You know, but it's not horrible. I mean, if you want to see a early 1950s film with a bunch of British guys doing German accents, sure. You know. <laughs> or, Trying. Trying is more like it, but okay. So, 1953, The Robe, where he was actually nominated for an Oscar for Best Actor. Gene Simmons of Black Narcissus, Angel Face, The Dane Curse, and the 1990s Dark Shadows revival from our Dan Curtis show. Michael Rennie of our Paul Nashy show's Assignment Terror. And Victor Mature of Kiss of Death, I Wake Up Screaming, and our Sophia Loren show's Firepower. Starring his weird-ass Forrest Gump for Bible thumpers, where Burton is a high-ranking Roman centurion who keeps tangentially crossing paths with Jesus and the disciples during and after the crucifixion. He gambles away his discarded garments and acts increasingly nutty until he winds up becoming a Christian evangelist and winding up killed for it by old rival Caligula, sadly not enacted as the insane pervert he actually was like John Hurt did so wonderfully in I, Claudius. It's boring and both extremely stiff and whitewashed, but compared to pretty much every other Bible epic save John Huston's weirdly seedy 1966 The Bible, it's slightly less vomit-inducing. It still sucks, and Burton is completely over the top as the increasingly unbalanced future convert, but by slipping it into all this nonsense sideways, it could almost be taken as a particularly noxious and soulless peplo of sorts. So it's not that terrible, believe it or not. So what's your take? I always like this. For Bible <laughs> films, yes, but, you know. No, no, no. I Stop. I always <laughs> liked the robe. Uh, yo, because it was, it was odd. Yes. I believe Demetrius and the Gladiators preceded this. I think so, yeah. And that was a Victor Mature kind of like peplum kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Victor Mature, a guy from like New York, Brooklyn, <laughs> you know, gangster movies, noirs. Who wound up fixing people's air conditioners. And, yeah. And he said like, yeah, well, let's, let's hire that jerk actor, Victor Mature. That's actually a quote from him to go do your air conditioner. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, and that wasn't even his real name, of course. You know, and No, he's Italian. And so, you know, why did I like this? Because, yes, it has bombast. And, but it, it, 
I always bought this movie and I bought Burton in the role because he's conflicted. You know, he's a, a centurion. Um, Marcellus Gallio. <laughs> and he's ordered to crucify Jesus. Okay. And, and like he's he's tormented. And you know, there there's some way over the top shit in this because Yes. <laughs> you know, he's so this this is that that, that stage dumping shit coming in here. This is like when he realizes what he did and he, he starts to think, what did I do? He's freaking out in the middle of, I guess it was the Praetorium, you know, with like, like you know, whoever else there in front of him, yeah, the senators. I, I, and I'm like, why does this so over the top? <laughs> going, he's going bananas. bananas. But <laughs> he's all about like I grabbing think... his head and freaking out like, you know, he's in network or something. <laughs> hey, but, you know, it was, it was a well worth Academy Award nomination because you 1953, nobody saw shit like that. Oh, hell no. And I still get a little chill sometimes watching it when he loses it because I, I have a I have a softy moment for stuff like that that's just like, <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm impressed that you went bananas and they captured a film like this. <laughs> um, yo, yo uh, does that make sense, folks? It's like, you, he's an early Richard Burton film performance, and he's totally losing it. <laughs> and 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 oh, he is chewing up the scenery, as they used to say. <laughs> well, you know, you could say chewing up the scenery, or you could say like or method acting. But no, this is a guy who's who's done the past five or six years work working primarily on stage. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'm going to go very deep into this character, and I think that's what happened here. I think I think that's just he's blowing his shit up. <laughs> I I I I have a soft soft spot for this picture. Um, I can hear you when people ask me like, do you watch any of these freaking Bible movies and shit? I'm like, eh. you know, I, I like the Bible, but otherwise, eh, I guess the robe is okay. So yeah, I I do get exactly what you're saying here. It's just like it's so you. over the top. <laughs> so after that, he does a couple more films that I did not see. Oh, I, I wanted to see Alexander the Great, but the copy that I got didn't work. Oh, okay. So I wanted to see. Uh, I wanted to say something about Prince of Players that I tried to get you to see, but I guess it's it is really hard to find nowadays. That's the problem. Yeah. I I first saw it on television many years ago, and um, so Burton plays 19th century American actor Edwin Booth. Yes. The brother of John Wilkes. I was just going to ask that. Yes. Okay. And it's, I mean, I did not know much about this story. Apparently it's true. Y'all both brothers were actors and he would travel throughout the American West and he would try to do, you know, Shakespearean small productions, you know, to people who didn't give a fucking shit. (laughs) You know, the guys are like, they're rallying, uh, you know, the, hog tying cows and all kinds of shit and like so what was most impressive about this film 1955 film directed by philip dunn i'm not quite sure what other, what other stuff he's done raymond massey's in this john derrick is in this guess who raymond massey plays the uh, movie has some you know it's adventurous to do something like this even in the 50s 55 assassinations were just around the corner folks mm-hmm. so i think it upped in popularity after the uh, kennedy assassinations the king assassination so on and so forth yeah malcolm x there's so many malcolm of them x movies. yeah 
One of the most jarring things about this film is that after his brother kills Lincoln, yo, know, he's hated. You know, of course. Yeah, obviously. Uh, obviously so. And it's the Midwest, <laughs> the American Midwest. Wild well, wherever you go, you're this guy's fucking brother. You know, whether it's true or not, it, it could be conventionality in terms of drama. But they, they kind of showed him doing a soliloquy mm-hmm. to these guys out in the Wild West. And he kind of wins them over. And I, I always liked that. It was a very sweet moment. I always liked Prince of Players. I think they didn't know how to sell it. I think they didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> and they just put it out there as a very oddball picture. But I always liked it. I thought it was a very sweet film. Alexander the Great, you didn't see? I wanted to, but like I said, the copy was busted. I wouldn't play. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those big... Peplos, more or less. Yeah, Historical. Pe- peplum, not peplum. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, I saw it. I haven't seen it in a long time. I could not see it for the show. I remember being big, bombastic. Claire Bloom was the moment of note in this. Uh, Frederick March. It's like there's really no woman in Alexander's life. He was, I think, he was supposed to be gay. He was like sleeping with his soldiers and shit. So. Yeah, but they didn't, they didn't want to tell you that. So. Yeah, <laughs> of course not. But you look back in anger. Actually, let's get to. There's a couple things before the back oh, in anger. Oh, okay, isn't sure. There? Yeah. So Sea Wife, 1957. Yeah. And now we come to a prime example of why no one of sane mind need waste their time watching any American film from the mid-40s through the end of the 60s. A Bob McNaught, producer of six films and director of three, none of which anyone's ever heard of, directs this soapy turd where everyone in the small cast goes by asinine grade school nicknames. Burton is Biscuit, who alongside some old fat guy named Bulldog, the titular character who we'll address momentarily, and a black dude who's not even granted a proper name, he's just referred to as number four throughout like a piece of luggage or some shit, or on a ship that gets torpedoed by the Axis. They float around on a lifeboat until they land on a deserted island. Number four builds a raft, Gilligan's Island style, and they float their way back home, Except for number four, who old races bulldog left without, leaving him to swim after them in shark-infested waters to the expected result. Joan Collins of Fear in the Night, Tales from the Crypt, and Tales that Witness Madness from our Hammer and Amicus shows, The Devil Within Her, Empire of the Ants, and the hilarious one-two kick in the balls that is the bitch and the stud, mm-hmm. is the titular, quote, sea wife, a plain-clothes nun who Burton falls for, but she won't give it up or even give him any encouragement in this. There's even a horrible song, Sea Wife that elicits a mix of laughter and pain groans throughout the opening credits roll. It's really atrocious. you got to hear it to believe it. That's actually the best part of the movie. He winds up posting in what they used to refer to as the agony column, but we call the Wanets, for his sea wife, surprisingly not getting replies from a bunch of cold girl strippers and the sort of desperate fat women who correspond with him marry convicts. Roll credits. Why does everyone have a stupid nickname they're exclusively referred to throughout? Why would Burton designate this unmoved woman as his temporary wife without even getting in her pants? Why was this waste of celluloid filmed in deluxe color even greenlit? Apparently, neorealist Roberto Rossellini was supposed to direct and script this, which is why Burton signed on in the first place. But as his presumably far more realistic story would have run afoul of the uptight Hayes Code folks who ruined American cinema for literal decades, they needed someone to keep things distinctly prim and milk toast. Can't have Burton humping away at a lusty nun, never mind their being stranded on a desert island. 
Realizing what a piece of shit he was stuck in, Burton whiled away his time getting loaded, playing cricket, and earning the rather sad achievement of being the only guy in cinema that Joan Collins didn't screw in her pre-Dynasty career. She had quite the reputation. So, anything you want to say about this disaster piece? Yeah, I mean, if Rosalini had directed this, I bet that the the black actor character... Would have had a name? Without a name <laughs> in this version would have persevered and made it. Oh, yeah. I agree. Uh, yeah, this was this was some definitely somebody stepped in. Either Rosalini pulled out or was replaced, and somebody stepped in and said, "I'll I'll I'll take care of this." And it's just <laughs> it's just not. No, it's it's an early film from him. Again, another early film from him, but it's not anything worth really. Yeah, mentioning. So next up is a much better film, Bitter Victory, 1957. Cut rate sporty starlet Ruth Roman, whose only pictures that anyone's ever heard of came in the mid 70s. Bizarre cult oddities like Ted Post's The Baby, Curtis Harrington's The Killing Kind, the execrable horror western Knife for the Ladies, William Girdler's Day of the Animals, and Bill Griffay's Impulse from our William Shatner show, and my career spanning interview with Griffay over at Third Eye Cinema. Is the woman in the middle of this. Oh, wait, isn't she in the Andromeda show? Was she? Yeah, it's possible. So, yeah. All right, so I missed that one. And we talked to the Andromeda strain in our Michael Crichton show. But anyway, she's the woman in the center of this wartime love triangle, which puts Burton against Kurt Jurgens of In God Created Woman, The Assassination Bureau, <laughs> Vault of Horror, and The Mephisto Waltz from our Bridget Bordeaux, Oliver Reed, Amicus, and Jackie Bissett shows, respectively, as well as the still strangely unreleased Sleep of Death. Somebody get on that. That's uh, a very interesting French period piece. Yeah, only on tape, only on tape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In this late entry from multiple-time noir director Nicholas Ray, who's in a lonely place we covered in our Humphrey Bogart show, you'd think this would come off as some soapy melodrama, but like several wartime pictures discussed in our Frank Sinatra show, it actually works somehow. A claustrophobic little piece set, perhaps paradoxically, in wide desert expanse of the North Africa campaign. Jurgens and Burton hate each other despite being in the same unit mm-hmm. because they both fuck the same woman, Roman, who Jurgens thereafter married in what appears to be a loveless arrangement. She doesn't think much of Hubby and seems to still hold a flame for her ex, who needs Burton as he doesn't speak any Arabic, which Burton does. Burton and Jurgens' antipathy only worsens when Jurgens, the unit commander, is too scared to shoot a sentry during a spying mission, and Burton has to do the deed to save everybody. He stays quiet about it and lets Jurgens take credit, but he hates Burton even more for holding the secret over his head. Eventually, a scorpion crawls up Burton's leg one night, which Jurgens sees but pretends to ignore, and the unit leaves so Jurgens can put the man out of his misery, but he leaves Burton to die in agony instead and gets mm. a medal for bravery. But it's a, quote, bitter victory, as Roman hears of Burton's death, susses things out, and walks out of the ceremony in disgust. Oh, poor cowardly Kurt. The cinematography is wonderfully and evocatively chiaroscuro, and the whole film manages to come off strangely taut and claustrophobic, despite its obvious lack of budget, desert settings, and dearth of battle sequences, feeling rather night-set, despite not often being so. It's easily Burton's best war film by a mile, at least until Where Eagles Dare comes along a decade later. I really, surprisingly enjoyed this one. What's your take? I thought you would. See, I, I knew if I talked you into the show, you would find things you didn't know existed. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. I had no idea. I was like, eh, whatever. It's not one of those things. This was like, holy shit, this is actually good. <laughs> this is a holy shit movie. Yeah, this is this is a holy shit movie. This is like, and you know, Kurt Jurgens. a lot of people know him from... Uh, Dust Boot. You know, uh, House of the Dead, Uwe Ball. <laughs> oh, Spiel oh, no, Sergei Prokdom, sorry. Uh, whatever. And... and or one of those Bond things, and but yeah, you know, he goes all the way back to the uh, 
Oh, he was in a lot of the German creamies, and he creamies, was in like, spy and films. And... and, you know, and Ruth Roman, very interesting actress. You know, she was, this is a story behind her, you know, she was this top-heavy actress, and, and she was also very powerful in her roles. And and somebody, some people, I've seen comparisons to Ida Lupino, who went on to do a directing career. But Ruth Roman had some issues. I don't know if they were of a sexual nature, you know, like same sex or whatever. So she was never able to sustain a major career. But this is one of those movies where we both are recommending because it's quite a surprise. I hate to say it, but it's actually one of the best ones you're going to hear about tonight. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, it's one of the yeah, best. Among them. You know, among we, them, yeah. We, we, we got some hits and misses. You know, we do. So, next up, 1959, Look Back in Anger, which you asked about. We covered this one in the first of our two Donald Pleasant shows. One of those miserablest kitchen sink dramas the British used to be so fond of. Mm. You know, that Coronation Street East Enders school of depressing no-hopers trudging through impoverished lives, domestic abuse, and so forth. Burton is actually a college graduate and jazz trumpeter, but since he's lower class, he's stuck working a damp fruit stand and living with both wife and business partner all in the same tiny flat. Being lower class, he further fails to rage against the rich right-wing fucks who keep him and those like him down, but instead lashes out at his long-suffering wife, beating the crap out of her throughout the film. Rather than moving out and dumping his ass, he winds up knocked up by the guy. When she asks the family doctor for an abortion, he pulls the Trump Supreme Court and yells at her. So what does she do? Invite her friend to move in with them all. She finally gets the girl to move out, only to fuck beaten Burton herself, until the wife miscarries and comes back to brawling Burton, cue bestie bowing out. Yay? Naturally, this turgid turd got nominations for BAFTAs and Golden Globes. What I always say about the inverse proportionality of industry award nods and actual filmic worth never fails to hold true. Next, what's your take on a stinker? Well, you know, it's in jolting black and white, and it's... You know, here's what I have to say about this. Say you you watched the the British version of The Honeymooners, but it was deadly fucking serious. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, right, you know, like uh, Jackie Gleason, Art Carney. Yeah, if it was real world, I'd be like, if it was up real on world, and... Honeymooners, <laughs> you know, it'd be hard to say. And this is the UK version of that, and this is hard to watch. It's it's raw. It's uh, the 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 cinematography is sharp, black and white. And, and you have to say the performances are all on top. It's hard to watch. That's the problem. It's hard to watch because there was a lot of these. They, they loved kitchen sink dramas. Diana Doors and all those people. You know, it's just I don't know. <laughs> I just can't stand this stuff. Yeah, honestly, I right. get it. It's not our cup of tea. It's not your cup of tea. It's it's like not something I like. But I, I do respect how well it was done. Yeah, no, there's no problems with the acting. It's just the script is like, oh my god. Yeah, it's, it's like who really... wants to watch this? It's like yeah. But no, it's a well-done thing, and uh, drama, drama is highest. Ooh, ooh. Mm-hmm. So he does a couple more small things, and the next one I'm going to talk about is The Longest Day in 1962. Yeah, let's go for it. Yeah. The longest entirely unwatchable film. <laughs> <laughs> it's long. This half-assed starfucker piece of shit actually has three directors, I shit you not, and you haven't heard of any of them. No-namers Andrew Martin and Bernard Wiecki have zero appreciable credits, while Ken Anakin's only semi-notable credit is the David Niven Paper Tiger, which is amusing. And Casino Royale. Really? He was part of that one, too? Oh, yes, you're right. Yeah. He was one of the directors on Casino Royale, among eight, I believe. 
So a whole shitload of folks like Robert Mitchum and Sean Connery, both John Wayne, we devoted entire shows to Kurt Jurgens, who we just talked about, Kurt Froba, and the bland Henry Fonda appear. But even beyond his endless meandering storyline and the fact that most of them are effectively cameos, there is way too much screen time given to that asshole hack John Wayne, who aside from his early 1930s serials and B-Westerns, renders nearly every film he's in completely unwatchable. Hi, Jan Darstan. Fuck you. <laughs> We'd ignored this one in both our Robert Mitchum and Sean Connery shows, so you get the idea. And anybody who doesn't understand that John Wayne impression, sit there and watch Big Jake, and then you, too, will be going around disgustedly saying, Hi, Jan Darstan, to everybody you meet. <laughs> Go ahead. What's your take on this? <laughs> That's a bad John Wayne impression, but it's okay. Um, well, the longest he was, day, he was a bad John Wayne impersonator. <laughs> the longest day, 1962, they didn't do it again till they did A Bridge Too Far, uh, I think. Or maybe there was one other in between. But this is like, let's get everybody who was everybody who was anybody to be in this film about D-Day, right? You you got all these guys with conflicting acting styles. Yep. There's, there's no way to actually... And I think they ran it for the full 24 hours. It feels that way. It's like four hours or something stupid. It's really long, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I, there's no way to accurately and, and appreciably reveal this picture because it's like so fucking long. And, and, <laughs> and meandering. Yeah, but, you know, I get what they were trying to do. I, I do get what they were trying to do. They were trying to represent the German version and the American version and the English version, which I think was better done in the bridge too far. It's not a great picture, but it's better than this. <laughs> um, it's not terrible if you if you guys really like watching World War II reenactment films from both Allied and German points of view. I give them credit for that. It's just like you, it's hard to shoehorn all these. You know, that was the problem with uh, Bridge Too Far. You had Redford, James Caan. Everybody was at top of the game and number one box office stars at the time. Dirk Bogart, well, he wasn't a box office, whatever. But no, he was over there. They loved him. Yeah, they they loved him. But I'm saying you can't do it. it we, we knew from watching this picture it didn't work then. And it, it still didn't work. But, you know. If you haven't seen it, I would say you ought to check it out because it's it's a spectacle. We don't see things like this. We mm-hmm. haven't for a long time. We never will again. The VIPs? No, actually, I'm going to Cleopatra next. We'll get the VIPs as well. So, 1963, Cleopatra. Endless, huge-budgeted mess. <laughs> Apparently, 1930s-era big-time producer Walter Wanger was trying to remake the actually far superior Claudette Colbert Cleopatra of the early 30s since the start of the 1950s and had Liz Taylor in mind right from the beginning. Unfortunately for him, wifey Joan Bennett of Dark Shadows fame was fucking around on him with her agent, so he blew the guy away, pleaded insanity, and wound up in the bookhouse for a few months. 
Then he couldn't find a director who wanted to be associated with him or the project, had issues with casting and multiple script rewrites, and eventually settled on another silent film talkies veteran, Robert Mamoulian, who filmed some stuff, but there were so many problems, including Liz winding up with meningitis, that he resigned after several months of filming, during which he only delivered 10 minutes of finished product out of all that time. Many more problems ensued, including Liz demanding that Joe Mankiewicz of our Michael Caine show Sleuth, who she had worked with previously as director here, numerous cast changes, more rewrites, the studio attempting to fire both Wanger and Mankiewicz, shifts in filming location, and Liz both getting pneumonia and a tracheotomy before the damn thing finally wrapped tens of millions of dollars over budget, and that's in 1963 dollars. While the sets are lavish and it certainly creates a spectacle, it's not a pimple on the ass of the far lower budgeted and set bound I Claudius, so one wonders what the hell the point was. Archie Bunker is in this film, as is Tuppence herself, Francesca Annis, of our Klaus Kinski and I believe all of our read shows, The Pleasure Girls, Martin Landau of our Mission Impossible in Space 1999 show, and Eye of the Stranger from my interview with David Hevner over at Third Eye Cinema, Roddy McDowell, who we devoted an entire show to, and Blythe Spirits Rex Harrison as Julius Caesar. Burton is a particularly pussy with Mark Anthony, very much under the heel of Liz's Cleopatra, and if you know your Shakespeare, you already know the whole story. It's not bad if you have the patience to sit through three hours plus running time when the original rough cut was over five. <laughs> What's your take? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of impressive stuff in this, like, like Martin Landau, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people gave Martin Lando shit, but, you know, roles like he did in this, you're like, wow, I'm impressed, you know, like he did in North by Northwest. Uh, I, I There's a lot of the small roles performed by actors and actresses in this movie are really gems. But the thing, <laughs> the th- you know, you, you well documented the history of this thing, and it was like, well... You got you got an actor and an actress who are falling in love, and she was already was she married to Mike Todd? I think I believe so. I think so. And Mike Todd was a producer personality, and they famously were fucking on this picture, Taylor and Burton, mm-hmm. and 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 that was led to setbacks. This is the most expensive film in film history by dollars. Yes. Yep. You know, forget about the running time of. What was it, like over three hours? Over three hours, and the rough cut was like over five. <laughs> the rough cut was over five, yeah. And and it's opulent. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's very clear that Wanger, if not McEvich, was trying to be Cecil D. DeMille, which is appropriate considering it's you know a remake of Cleopatra. But, yeah, I mean, it's just, it looks good in a lot of ways. I thought but it was shit. always Mankiewicz, but, the, you know, who knows how it's pronounced. But, yeah, I mean, it's true. It's big. It's opulent. Yeah, here's one of the many, many stories, you know, they could have used a lot of standing sets that were already built for peplums, mm-hmm. and they decided to build their own, and then they were getting kind of tight for time and cash, and they, they had to find some of the still standing sets for peplums. <laughs> so, uh, this is like one of the most expensive movies ever made. Well, at least they didn't do... Was that Russell with the Devils where they hired Derek Jarman and he did those avant-garde like stage stage play kind of sets for it? 
could have been. I don't know. I think it was. And if it is, then we talk about that one in our Oliver Reed show, as, or as well as our uh, Ken Russell show. So. <laughs> could have been. Could have been. Yeah. Next. Because those are some strange sets. Anyway, so now the VIPs, 1963, same year. And Anthony Asquith, whose only notable film was the snooze-inducing adaptation of Wilde's Importance of Being Earnest, brings his pal Margaret Rutherford and hubby Stringer Davis back for another round in this dull, weepy anthology of unrelated folks during an extended layover at Heathrow Airport. It's yet another meta thing for Liz and Dick, only this time she's trying to dump hubby Dick and run off with Louis Jordan of one of the better Dracula's of the late 70s BBC miniseries, interesting 70s TV movie Fear No Evil, and Octopussy from our trio of Bond shows. Octopus. A definite trade-up over drunken lush Dick, eh? Since they're stuck at the airport, Burton has chosen time to BS his way back into her good graces. Orson Welles of our Jackie Bissett shows Casino Royale, and our Richard Benjamin and Tony Perkins shows Catch-22, and cute Elsa Martinelli of Vadim's Blood and Roses and the Tenth Victim, or a producer and starlet trying to get the hell out of England to dodge the tax man, and Dennis Price, who starred with Rutherford and Stringer in the best of the Miss Marvel films, Murder Most Foul, as well as fun British cult films like Earth Does Screaming, Curse of the Voodoo, The Fabian Shirley Eaton Ten Little Indians, our Hammer shows Twins of Evil, our Amicus shows Tower of Evil, uh, there's a theme there, Power Hospital, Theater of Blood, and several Jess Franco pictures from our trio of Jess Franco shows, and Maggie Smith of our Whoopi Goldberg show Sister Act films also appear on other stupid soap opera stories like that. <laughs> <laughs> They've been doing this sort of nonsense since Grand Hotel and Dinner at Eight in the pre-code days, only those films were a whole lot, a lot better than this shit. There's a reason that you probably haven't heard of this one. Well, this is, uh, they were right after Cleopatra. They were the, uh, the couple du jour. You know? Yeah, the cause celebre of Hollywood. <laughs> the cause celebre of Hollywood. And, and somebody said, hey, you're stuck in uh, LaGuardia, uh, oh, the Heathrow. Heathrow, trying to get to LaGuardia, or JFK, wherever the fuck it was. <laughs> and we're all concerned about your rich passes. No, we're not. And... <laughs> And so this it's is like, oh, I'm losing some money on this deal. I got to get out of here before the tax man gets me. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> this is one of those pictures that led to led to issues when they would get together and do odd pictures like this. I mean, why? Nobody cares. But people would go because at this time period, people were still inflamed and, and interested in the Burton. Taylor romance. Yeah, what was that? That might, magazine. That might have been that might have been part of the thing though. You know, it was like, oh, let's go see them in something else. I don't know. It's not photo play, but there was a magazine that was really popular back then. That was like the movie line of its era. It was kind of like sleazy gossipy, but everybody went a to movie it. Movie mirror or something? Maybe, but I don't remember the name of the damn thing right now. But I mean, it'll come to me at some point. But yeah, in the fifties, there was a huge thing, and people were looking at this stuff like, "Ooh, listen, Dick, what's going on?" So they were really, really interested in this. So therefore, oh, yeah. they started together in what seven films, something like that. Interestingly enough, a lot of them were very meta because people were actually looking at what they were doing and writing it into these scripts. You know, and then hand them oh, here. Sure. This is what you do. So anyway, next up, he is actually the narrator in Zulu, which I believe we had talked to once before. We did, we did. Then he's in something about Tom Beckett, the oh, playwright. That's a that's an amazing picture. No, go ahead. I've seen it many times. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, King Henry of England comes to terms with this affection mm-hmm. <laughs> for his close friend and confidant, Thomas Beckett, who finds his true honor by serving God's divine will rather than the king's. 
So Burton and Peter O'Toole, I'm sure we've probably covered this in the O'Toole show. Um, we didn't do an O'Toole show. We did a Harris one. But we oh, we should? I'm sure <laughs> we'll cover this in the O'Toole show that we haven't done yet. <laughs> uh, how about that? Hey, it's possible. <laughs> Just so we can do Supergirl. <laughs> come on, come on, man. I like Peter O'Toole. Anyway, so, um, the, you know, the, the movie shows when they were, like, it's very theatrical. It shows when they were young and best buddies, and then, you know, one went toward religion and God, and the other one became king. And then their ass became the separation of their friendship. And it's very, for 1964, it's very homoerotic. Mm-hmm. It's also very heavy with insinuations is it as good as spartacus in that respect <laughs> it's different it's different. It's, different. Okay. it's long it's another long movie it's uh geez, i don't know it's almost three hours but i always like this because they age them really well as the film progresses and there's lots of i mean if you want to see two good actors against each other pretty much at prime this is a kind of movie, it's a drama, but this is the kind of movie I'd recommend. Like, you know, Burton's, Burton's at full throttle here, and O'Toole's at full throttle here, and they both believe in the material. It's a talky film. I'm going to admit that. It's not an adventure film, but I, I always consider it one of my favorites. I watch it every few years. It's mm. really good. Okay. So, 1964, The Night of the Iguana. That's what? a strange movie. Yeah. <laughs> What the fuck is wrong with Tennessee Williams? Spending the entirety of his career obsessing over the tawdry lives of white trash with some sweaty, implied but generally frustrated sex driving all his characters' disillusion, was his own sexuality that hard to come to terms with? It's embarrassing the way he goes on about nothing whatsoever, and people love it, which says something about the public at large, their uptightness and general lack of class. This town needs an enema indeed. So, this particular slice of tawdry lives centers on a unshaven, sweaty Burton, a defrocked priest who was banging some Sunday school teacher, we're told, and flipped out in the pulpit over his congregation's apparent disapproval, who's stuck doing low-rent bus tours to Mexico, which is more or less when we pick up. When cute but dumb and extremely annoying Sue Lyon of our Stanley Kubrick show's Lolita and our Frank Sinatra show's Tony Rome comes on to him, he comes under fire once again, this time from obnoxious old Biddy, wait for it, Grayson Hall of Satan in High Heels, Gargoyles, and Dark Shadows from our Dan Curry show, <laughs> who's convinced that he started it. He flips out and takes the bus off course to a hotel run by an old pal of his for some unknown reason, pulling the distributor cap and pretending that they broke down as the hotel apparently has no outside lines. But nope, he's not here to bilk them for money, go all slasher film on them, or even fuck willing Minx Lion. There appears to be no reason whatsoever for this. It turns out that his pal is dead, and the hotel is run by his widow, blows the Ava Gardner of Tamlin, the Cassandra Crossing, the Sentinel, and killing of the president from a Roddy McDowell, Richard Harris, Sophia Loren, Satan in the 70s, and William Shatner shows, respectively. Just to bloat the film's running time, Deborah Kerr of Eye of the Devil and Casino Royale from our David Hemmings and Jackie Bissett shows drops by the hotel. Everyone wants Burton. Burton's a sexually conflicted mess. Everyone leaves but Burton, who stays on with Gardner. Whoopty shit. John Huston, who directed several films discussed in our Humphrey Bogart show and the only watchable Bible movie ever, The Bible, in 1966, still brings some nice cinematography in the same up-close-and-personal, sweaty, confined spaces feel of earlier, far superior works like Key Largo to the Table. But they can't save the film from its turgid Tennessee Williams origins and script. 
naturally, of course, this won all sorts of awards nominations, including one for Grayson Hall, which no one who's ever seen her in Dark Shadows would ever believe. Awful. People need to get laid and lose all those hang-ups so we can finally rid the world of Republicans, religious mania, and films like this. What's your take? Well, I, I don't think of Grayson Hall the same mindset as I do of Barbara Bain. But... <laughs> I knew you would laugh at that. But, um... Oh, Barnabas. <laughs> and the best part is we are finishing up Dark Shadows all the way through for like the second or third time. We're actually on like episode like 1200 out of 1278. Oh my God, she's something else. <laughs> hey, you know my childhood, your childhood. When, 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 when... Although sometimes I looked at Grayson and I was like, hmm. Well, I'm not talking about her looks or whatever else. That's fine. Everyone's got their own taste. But just as an actress, it's like, oh, how she's did terrible. you win an award? Yeah, exactly. She's horrible. <laughs> but, but Barbara Bain is something else. Barbara, we're not, gonna, we're not talking. <laughs> anyway. So anyway. No, I, I, I can't fault anything you said about Night of the Iguana. It's certainly rough. I mean, 1964. So this is a period of time where filmmakers started becoming more adventurous. You know, John Huston's been at it for a while by now. And and he wasn't one of those filmmakers I think would make something like this. Yeah. Yeah, Tennessee Williams, everybody knows from, uh, you know, he's, he's doing all these theatrical. Cat and Hot Right, he's and, doing yeah. all these theatrical productions, writing yeah. all these plays, um, well-known books. Mm-hmm. And this is just like complete. WTF material for a movie. Yes. I don't know what anybody thought of this at the time. You know, I was too young. I saw, I didn't see this till years later. And when I did, I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you, you have at the time, like a lot of milfy actresses, you know, Ava Gardner, Deborah Kerr, who was like really hot in Casino Royale with David Niven, Sue Lyon, who wouldn't get another break until she started into Euro spy, uh, not Euro spy, Euro crime stuff. Yes. Even Ava Gardner, because around this time, I think Frank was doing her, right? Yes. So uh, he's probably pissed because I'll picture Richard Burton was, too. Uh, <laughs> so this is a very strange movie. Probably, I don't know, did it work better run on stage? I'm sure it was done on stage. Oh, yeah. I, I never saw it done on stage, but it's a hard movie to watch because it's like, Wow, this is so weird. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, did I miss something? Why did he take the bus to that place in the first place? He did nothing. It was not like, okay, you figure he's going to go there because he wants to screw the Sioux Lion. All right, that's one thing. You figure he's going there because he's what, on the run for the government? I don't know. Why the hell did he go there? He didn't go there to retaliate against the people. He didn't go there to you know, kill them off. He, why did you do this? I had no fucking clue. He goes, takes him to this weird place, pulls the distributor cap. He knows the place has no phones. Why are you trapping them in this hotel? So, so, yeah, it was just a fucking mess. Anyway. Did you, see, did you see Hamlet? No, I did not. Yeah, in 64, John Gilgood, the John Gilgood, convinced Burton to do a one-man show. Okay. Come to Broadway, but do Hamlet in a raw version as, like, sort of a dress, dress rehearsal in front of a, of course, live audience. Mm-hmm. And to see, I guess at the time, so we're thinking... You know, John Gilgood, a lot of people don't give him credit for a very forward-thinking guy as far as a director, actor, writer. And I think his vision was 
let's do it as like a living theater kind of presentation. You know, living theater is one of the avant-garde things going on at the time in the, in the U.S. and New York. So they were thinking, let's not do it like the old Vic or like uh, any of the other U.K. historic productions we've been doing Shakespeare. You go on one man show, wear a black shirt, black jeans, and it's just you. You're going to do Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Raw. I've seen this. I've seen this. It's pretty great. I mean, it's like, uh, well, you know, it's Richard Burton. Nah, it's it's raw and it's 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 pretty good. It's like three hours plus. <laughs> well, it's Shakespeare. It's Shakespeare, but it's like, damn, how many nights can you do this? I mean, I would drink a fucking bottle tonight <laughs> too. <laughs> I'm like, how the hell can you do it? No, I'm kidding, folks. But I I don't know. How could you drink a bottle at the end of the night? Wasn't he four bottles a day or something at a certain point? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, I, I I don't know how, you know, this thing is it's 190 minutes long. Go figure that out. Mm. <laughs> you probably spent half your life there. But you have to, you know, what's interesting about this, there are some smaller roles in the periphery because you know it's hard for him to just do the solo yeah so some people do come and go and a lot of them are tv guest star type people that we saw like in mission impossible and other tv shows in the late 60s early 70s so uh it was very interesting how many of those people started on stage Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very good i was always impressed with it not that i'm gonna rewatch it a lot but (laughs) So next up, he does What's New Pussycat. He's just there, a, a guest appearance, and walks on, basically. Guest appearance, yeah. And then he does another one with Liz, The Sandpiper. Highly overrated director Vincente Minnelli, whose only other film of note is the weird Babs-Yves Montan pairing on A Clear Day You Can See Forever, drops this interesting if inconsequential bit of business about a free-love artist type homeschooling a brat kid who molests little girls and guns down animals because he's pretty much an animal himself, like most kids. Burton is a priest come schoolmaster called in to straighten out the brat who winds up fucking around with proto-hippie Liz. North by Northwest, even Marie Saint is Burton's cold and uptight wife who he eventually dumps. And of all people, Charles Bronson, who we did a whole show on, appears as a beatnik beachcomber type who shares Liz's disgust for Burton's uptight right-wing values. He's the best part of this one, particularly when, rather than staying with Liz, Burton just leaves town sans wife, mistress, or career. It's kind of a mess, really, but as a teen, I did appreciate the well-deserved middle finger to straight society, as they used to say. But why the psycho brat? They could have just made him an uptight guy in a loveless marriage, and it would have been a much better film. So, what's your take on this one? Yeah, Benelli's highly overrated. Mm-hmm. He made some strange films. Interesting, folks, take note. This is like one of the few movies with Charles Bronson and Richard Burton yes. together. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bronson's this... a hippie, <laughs> or beatnik, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just quite good. You know, that guy is so underrated. We did a Bronson show. Yes, we, we did, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 maybe maybe sometime in the future we could reevaluate some of those performances because there are some things we took for granted. And then the more we watch other films, and then he's been in these other things, and we may not have seen these other pictures. We're like, you know, that's an interesting performance. It's an interesting performance. Yeah. Interesting film. Not a great picture. (laughs) 
So next up, he does something that was actually rather interesting. The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Yeah, yeah. And he actually got a couple of nominations for this. He got a BAFTA for it, and he got nominated for the Oscars. And this time, it's actually one of those ones where you're like, okay, I can see that. Burton is the titular spy in this adaptation of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spies John Le Carr from a Martin Ritt of no further credits of interest. There's a stalwart cast of British character actors like our true Bond show's M, Bernard Lee, our Hammer show regular Michael Ripper, a rather cute Claire Bloom of The Haunting and our sci-fi with a message shows The Illustrated Man, Rupert Davies of our Sophia Loren shows The Key, Brides of Fu Manchu, Five Golden Dragons, Witchfinder General, our Hammer shows Dracula Has Ridden from the Grave, our Amicus shows Curse of the Crimson Altar and The Oblong Box, The Night Visitor, which was reviewed over at thirdeyesemina.wordpress.com, and our Pete Walker shows Frightmare, and Germany's Peter Van Eck of our Hammer shows The Snorkel, and our German Creamy slash Edgar Wallace shows Dr. Mabuza films. Essentially, Burton is made out to be fired from MI6 so that he can cozy up to commie sympathizer Bloom and defect behind the Iron Curtain with the aim of pulling a Fox News-style fifth-column disinformation campaign. But there's the usual Lacar twist in the tail when it turns out that his disinfo on a high-ranking Rusky was supposed to get discredited to remove suspicion from said target, who actually is a British spy slash double agent. Cue a Tinker Taylor-style cynical speech from Burton, asking doe-eyed commie Bloom, do you think spies have moral philosophers measuring what they can do against the word of God or Karl Marx, sitting like monks in a cell, balancing right against wrong, before she's gunned down as the last eyewitness to the whole mission? And disillusioned himself, Burton chooses the same fate. Well, that was quite the downer. It's not Tinker Taylor, and Burton's, you know, he's not really Alec Guinness, or even for that matter, Tinker Taylor in Special Branch's Patrick Mower. It's rather disappointingly shot in cheap-ass black and white, and trust me, he'll appreciate the talking but much darker miniseries a lot more than this one. But it's clearly sourced from the same author, and if you haven't seen it and enjoy this sort of realistic political intrigue, you may well enjoy this one as well. What's your take? Oh, I, I, I quite liked it. It's such a fucking downer, though. Such a downer because uh, it's grim. It's brutal. Oscar Werner from Fahrenheit 451 is in this. I think the stark black and white really adds to the, uh, I don't know, the uh, kind of weird, downtrodden, strange whole thing. Uh, you know, it's, uh, oh, you mentioned Martin Ritt. You still there? Well, you mentioned Martin Ritt. Of, well, Martin Ritt did Sounder, The Great White Hope, The Molly Maguires. We actually covered that. Mm-hmm. Norma Ray, Murphy's Romance, and uh, Beverly Hills Cop 1. Yeah. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Go figure. So it's a tough movie to watch. I didn't like the ending. I don't like endings that are so... Fleek. Are you on fire? Are you on fire? <laughs> oh, there's so much chaos going on here behind the scenes. If you heard, I was distracted during the last script. But yeah. sorry, sorry, <laughs> no, sorry, no, sorry. nothing to do with you. Yeah, so yo, I, I, yo, I, I don't like films that are downbeat, downtrodden, whatever. It was a good movie. I just found that I. Uh, I kind of lost where I was. Folks, you understand this. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. Oh, my God. My wife came home and she was looking for something, couldn't find it. And then the cat was up here trying to shut down the computer. All kinds of totally chaos going on my side. So I totally get it. Don't worry about being lost. <laughs> I got lost for a moment, folks. Okay. We did Beckett. We did Nine of the Guys. Okay. Okay. Where are we? What's New Pussycat? 
No, no, we already I mentioned it anyway that he was in right. it. But uh, all right, so unless you need to speak to that one, I was going to go to Virginia Woolf. Oh, that's another rough one. Yeah. So, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, 1966. Miserable crap from Edward Albee of Zoo Story fame, directed by Mike Nichols of Catch-22 from our Richard Benjamin and Tony Perkins shows. Liz and Dick are themselves even more than usual for their on-screen pairings, a pair of nasty drunks who come home loaded with a younger couple, George Siegel, who we did an entire show on, and a Sandy Dennis who apparently had coke-fiend Eric Roberts as a beard, but as he admits was really, as you might expect from someone living with Eric Roberts, a lesbian. All kinds of nasty divorce-baiting dialogue and dirty laundry gets aired. Liz and Dick have an imaginary kid. He only married her because she's the boss's daughter, etc., etc. Siegel only married Rug Munch and Dennis because she was rich and faked the pregnancy, but she really just had an abortion and didn't tell him. Siegel tries fucking old fat Liz to advance his own career but can't get it up. You get the idea. Yay? This proto-ice storm of hateful people perfect together isn't even watchable as a camp thing like so many Milligan films are. So, of course, it got over a dozen Oscar nods for every single person in the cast and actually won several of those, once again proving that if it's Oscar-nominated, there is no reason whatsoever for any sane person to actually watch it. What's your take? <laughs> any skinny person or a sane person? Sane. Oh. Yeah, there's no reason any skinny person should watch this. <laughs> Well, this is kind of beefy here. <laughs> well, yo, this is, oh, this is rough. You know, we mentioned the George Siegel show. And, uh, yes. Uh, Sandy Dennis, really interesting in this. It's essentially a four-person play filmed. And, you know, <laughs> it's like, if this is what Liz and Dick were like in real life, why the fuck were they with each other? It's like rough, rough. It's like. People drinking and yelling and disenchanted. Just going at each other, yeah. Going at each other and disenchanted where where they are, why they came there. And the, the weirdest thing is this doesn't end with violence. Yeah, that was actually strange about this, but it was an Albie script, so. It was an Albie script, yeah. But, but And being 1966, so we're, we're at that that causeway we're at that section where we could have went there and we didn't you know this was done on the stage too he's he's a fine playwright i've seen a couple edward alby things like you know yeah all right just get to the fucking point but <laughs> um yeah alby pinter the kind of all yeah right alby and pinter were of of, of a sort mm -hmm. unfortunately though after this movie until they he hit what where Eagles Dare, he started getting into a rut of doing strange movies movie. with Liz that suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he was doing a yeah. bunch of strange movies, which, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, they're making money, obviously, but they're just like, oh. They're making money, but, but is anybody really, I don't know. What do people make of these things? Yep. So next up, another one of these, The Taming of the Shrew, mm -hmm. 1967. Schmaltzy costume Shakespeare adaptation man Franco Zeffirelli of Romeo and Juliet, Brother, Son, and Sister Moon, and Psycho Teen's Burn Down the Family House epic, Endless Love, goes <laughs> note for note on the now politically incorrect play, and guess who the leads are? 
Burton seems to be having fun reversing roles from his human footstool to Liz of Cleopatra, and Liz is appropriately childishly obnoxious and fiery, but other than noting Zeffirelli's usual fetish for dirty-looking people and lust costumery, there's not much to say for it, which is the case for every single on-screen pairing of the tumultuous couple. Michael York of the Three and Four Musketeers movies from our Oliver Reed show, Logan's Run, and Diodato's Phantom of Death, and A Night in Camelot from a Whoopi Goldberg show, more or less cameos as one of his pussy-whip blowhard, quote, rivals at the Denouement, but it's pretty much the same role he plays with Whoopi a few decades later, no stretch. There's not much to say for this one. What's your take? Yeah, I wasn't thrilled with this. Uh, you know, I did rewatch it for the show, but uh, I kind of liked the next one. Which Burton, yes. which Burton directed. Weird, stagey, but trippy take on Robert Marlowe's play Dr. Faustus about a guy who makes a deal with the devil out of personal hubris. The only reason anyone would want to discuss this beyond the fact that it's directed by Burton himself is the visuals which marry our Amicus shows The Skull and our Barbara Steele shows Curse of the Crimson Altar to Japan's Jigoku and our Satan in the 70s shows The Witchmaker. Amusingly, short-lived Doctor Who cast member Ian Martyr, Harry Sullivan for a handful of early Tom Baker episodes, has a small part in this. Once Burton makes not one, but two deals with the devil, he's essentially led through hell and its various temptations and horrors, which come off akin to a TV-friendly take on Mirbeau's torture garden, and Liz keeps appearing as various goddess figures and succubus types in different colors of body paint a la Shirley Eaton and Goldfinger. She looks damn good in this one, and the various scenarios are bizarre and quite visual for the obvious lack of budget. You could say it's akin to a particularly trippy something weird film, but I certainly liked it, especially when a green-painted Liz gleefully drags Burton down to hell at the end. See? Every film they did together was meta. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, 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 I'm glad you sort of liked it. Um, yeah. I, I saw this late night. Gosh, CBS, CBS, Channel 2. I hope you weren't high at the time. No, I was a kid, damn you. Know? <laughs> that would have been a bad trip. I was been seven, eight, nine years old. CBS TV, late night, day, back in those days, bless them. Bless mm -hmm. broadcast television for... Oh, they were so good back in the 70s. Yeah. You know, like just going the extra mile. You know, I saw all kinds of crazy shit. Yep, and I saw this one night. I'm like, What? <laughs> and the, the, the announcers would always, always mispronounce everything. Would they say Faustus? They would say Faustus starring Richard Boynton or, or, you know, or Elizabeth Taylor, Tyler, Elizabeth Tyler, <laughs> like Steve Tyler's daughter. And, and I'm like, what? What? And I saw this once, and I'm like, what the hell? And, you know, back in those days, they didn't cut too much because they didn't know what they had. Yeah. And and I was like, this is weird. And then I'll tell you. And they would rerun these fucking things again. It's like, it's on again at 1.30 a.m. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we didn't have, like, cell phones back then. We're like, oh, I guess I'll have to stay up all night to watch this shit again. <laughs> yeah, there was no VCRs. And, you know, they didn't have freaking infomercials, so they would just show weird shit. They had no way watching anyway. Let's rerun this bizarre freaking movie. It was movie. so weird. And, and you don't really see this film being talked about a lot. No, no. Um... Yeah, I yo, I give him a lot of credit for doing whatever he wanted to do with this, whatever it was that he intended to do with this. <laughs> I enjoyed the hell out of it, and I think it's yeah. probably in Richard Burton's CV. It's like a film that people, you know, where's where's the Blu-ray of this? 
It's totally forgotten, but it's really trippy. And like I said, if you like the other films I mentioned, which you would not associate with Richard Burton in any way, no. you'll like this one. It's actually, at least visually, really screwed up. And the storyline's screwed up, too. You know, it's about deals with the devil and God knows what else. Yeah, but he was on point. So it gives you a clue to he knew what he was doing when he was sober <laughs> or not. And And no, but like he was a smart guy. Yeah. So he really wanted to do this, so he was on point with this, you know, and, and, and he was only occasionally on point with other things. Yes. It's just a shame. Very yeah. true. So next up he does, same year, 1967, The Comedians. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking this before we talked about the VIPs. I'm like, oh, boy, what about The Comedians? Sir Alec Guinness of George Siegel Show's Quiller Memorandum and the excellent miniseries Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which I mentioned earlier, comes mm. to Papa Doc Duvalier-era Haiti as a guest of the government, who's now deposed, being old Alec is given the Gitmo treatment. And then, given the golden ticket to the local whorehouse, where he gets some from Miles Davis' ex, Cicely Tyson, because Raymond St. Jacques, of our exploitation show's Cotton Comes to Harlem, our Bronson show's Evil That Men Do, and our John Carpenter show's They Live, is schmoozing him to get a British arms deal. The rest is a big, depressing mess of beatings, executions, and such like, involving James Earl Jones, of our Arnold Schwarzenegger show's Conan, and our Eddie Murphy and Wesley Snipes show's Coming to American Films, Roscoe Lee Brown, of our Whoopi Goldberg show's Jumpin' Jack Flash, Peter Ustinov, of our Tony Curtis show's Spartacus, and silent film star Lillian Gish. Burton is a sad sack hotelier who's screwing around on Ustinov with a man's wife, Liz Taylor, but who cares? It's not the sort of film a larger-than-life, cartoonish couple like Liz and Dick would ever fit in, and they consequently stick out like a sore thumb among far more realistically-minded, and in many cases, young and hungry actors. Not a terrible movie, but it doesn't really work, and what the fuck are Burton and Taylor even doing in this? I don't know. It's a very strange, very strange movie. Yeah. I mean, th- this comes to the point where, like, how is it greenlit? Yeah. Who paid for this? <laughs> uh, who, who who wanted this? <laughs> and well, why yeah, did Wesley Dick in it? Yeah, like who who greenlit this? Who who said, oh, this is this sounds like a good idea? <laughs> yeah, I I get it. You know, it's it's always there's always been conflict in Haiti and places like that and and countries like that and and where it's like we already have two oddball elite actor and actresses who are married or living together and and we're gonna insert them into this this thing with a bunch of like young and hungry black exploitation and you know black cinema stars and then you know old Alec Guinness who's gonna get beat up and tortured and whatever the hell else and yeah what the hell (laughs) yeah yeah, very, very strange thing. Very strange thing. But it's just like the next one. Boom. Yeah, you I did boom? not see Boom. That's, that's actually really hard to find nowadays. I wanted to, but if you saw it, go for it. Yeah, Boom. Boom. <laughs> boom is considered like one of the most psychedelic, um, fucked up movies ever made. <laughs> really? Even worse than Head? <laughs> well, on that way, it's like. Super ski point. <laughs> Joseph Luzzi. Mm hmm. Yeah, we spoke to him a couple of times. Yes. Joseph Luzzi somehow. <sighs> I saw this for the show. Joe. How did you find I it? Saw it <laughs> I saw it before. Yes, I found it online. Somebody sent me a link. Oh, okay. So Elizabeth Taylor plays this ultra rich woman 
who lives on the island of whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> and Richard Burton is he's too old than he is for the part. Supposed to be playing a, a gigolo. And he comes to this island to romance this woman. But the thing is, so the story goes that Joseph Lucy was hardly there. Burton was inebriated most of the time. Taylor was stoned. <laughs> Noel Coward, who's also in the film, was ripped. Of course, he's always drunk. And <laughs> yeah, and 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 they 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 hardly were able to pull a coherent picture together. And and you know when Richard Burton's probably supposed to be playing someone like twenty years younger than his role, you you know you're in for some trouble. <laughs> I saw outtakes from this where I'd be sitting around drinking. <laughs> yeah. There was a, uh, I don't know if it's coming out or it just came out. There's a Blu-ray or something or uh, 4K. I just trust everybody sitting around drinking. <laughs> it, uh, almost most of this movie was improvised. And I'm just like, wow. <laughs> but thankfully, he... Got it together for the next picture. Yeah, so 1968, where Eagles Dare. We cover this one in our Clint Eastwood show, for sure. Uh, Brian Horton, who also gave us Kelly's Heroes a year later, directs this Alistair McLean heist-slash-war film, and like the aforementioned Kelly's Heroes, it's one of the best of the genre. Clint Eastwood, who we did a whole show on, Ferdy Main of our Roman Polanski shows Fearless Vampire Killers and Vampire Happening, Ingrid Pitt of our Hammer and Amicus shows Vampire Lovers Countess Dracula and the House That Drip Blood, Patrick Weimark of our Amicus and Polanski shows The Skull, Witchfinder General, Blood on Satan's Claw and Repulsion, Anton Differing of our Emmanuel shows Vanessa, our trio of Jess Franco shows Love Letters for a Portuguese Nun, our Hammer shows Shatter Circus of Horrors, and our Sci-Fi in the 70s shows Fahrenheit 451, and Darren Nesbitt of the first series a special branch all appear. Burton, Eastwood, and company do a seemingly impossible rescue mission to free a captured Allied general in the German Alps, only accessible by ski lift. There's plenty of espionage, double agents, and surprising twists and turns galore, which is the hallmark of Alistair McLean's scripted pictures, which include a number of favorites like Puppet on the Chain, our Charlotte Rampling shows Caravan of Vicaris, When Eight Dulls Toll, and our Charles Bronson shows Breakheart Pass. This is easily one of Burton's most heroic roles, and like I said, we spoke to it previously a couple of times, but certainly went in-depth with it on our Clint Eastwood show. It's a very good one. Oh yeah, it's it's. <laughs> I revisit this at least once a year. I can see that. And you know what? Thunderous score, thunderous musical score. Mm-hmm. Well edited, totally edited. And yo, know, it's not short. You know, it's uh, like two thirty, two hours thirty minutes thereabouts. And it's like this should be the movie that does not work. Clint Eastwood and fucking Richard Burton, right? <laughs> Right out the box, you're like, nah, it doesn't work. <laughs> it does work. Mm-hmm. And it does work. And Mary, you're an Ingrid Pitt. You know, it's a funny thing was we were so used to Ingrid Pitt from all these Hammer films and whatnot and horror movies. And we forgot when she's not doing that kind of role, like how, how good she is doing something else. And Darren Nesbitt, who's who spends a life, apparently spent a lifetime doing these German, these German uh, parts. He's, he's, he's quite entertaining, you know. And, and was Anton differing in this too? I'm not positive, but I think so. I think he was. I one think of the... so. Yeah, yeah. And Brian G. Hutton, 
I believe he was the director. I, you know, it's just, I mean, it's high adventure, and, and you know, Patrick Weinmark is in this. You know, yes, we we spoke we spoke of him in a couple of other pictures. Yeah, like Eddie Murphy's uh, what was that Trading Places? <laughs> Not to mention our Hammer it, shows, and yeah, it could be yeah, the Tygon show where we did the British Gold films. You know, it's it's just like it's just like the movie you think would never work, and it does work very well at that. Very well. It's it's one of my personal favorite World War Two action adventure yeah, films. I totally agree. I loved it ever since I saw it when I was like nineteen. And I'll tell you this, guys, <laughs> the cinematography it, it escapes me at the moment. But whoever did that captured it so well. Whatever time of year you're watching it, whether you're watching it in the summer, spring, mm-hmm. fall. You're going to feel cold. Yeah, exactly. It's beautifully shot. It's oh. got a decent score. It's an action film. It's a heist film. It's a spy film. It's a war film. they got beautiful girls in there. they got people that you wouldn't necessarily think should be in the same cast, but it works. You know, They're not fighting each other. It actually gels. It's such a good one. If you have any interest in this sort of thing, I would definitely recommend checking this one out. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, those are other elements, too. It's a heist film, too. And it's a spy film, too. And there's a midway past the quarter point. It's like, oh, really? I'm not who I am. Yep. I am. I'm not who you think I am. Mm-hmm. I, I'm somebody else. Which is the same thing we were talking about with the uh, John LaCar stuff, but McLean does yeah. it better. I love Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, but McLean films are so much fun. And they're so. Yeah, McLean does it better, but. but... For this kind of thing, it was a bit of a surprise. Yes. And, and it was like, <laughs> there's a great moment in this movie. You know, then we'll, then we'll move on. There's a great moment in this movie where, like, Burton's like, and, and East was like, I don't trust you. And East was like, I don't trust you either. <laughs> <laughs> was that when they, they ran the thing off the roads, pretend that they were, you know, so they could march into the castle, like, as the German officers? No, no, they're, they're already in the castle. And they're in the, the round table. Oh, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're in the round table, and and like, and he's was like, "Are you fucking with me?" <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Burton's like hinting at him, like, "No, I'm not fucking with you. Give me a fucking hint, you idiot." <laughs> and, oh, it's such a good movie, guys. If you've not seen Where Eagles Dare, or if there's any thought, oh, it's a cheesy movie. Got Clint Eastwood, Richard Burton. Couple of great the tavern scene even <laughs> where oh, the German the soldiers come in and it, yeah. <laughs> oh, tavern scene is great. Just so much good stuff. Tavern scene, yeah. Or here, here's another good moment. The uh, group is parachuting down. Some guys get caught in the tree and fucking die. And I was like, oh shit, we didn't make it. You know, this is really. I have to say, personally, it's an underrated film even now. Even now, because it doesn't get the love that it should get. I mean, it's one my pers- one of my personal favorites. And, hey, it takes a lot for me to revisit a movie every so many years. But I'm like, damn. I rewatch stuff that I enjoy quite a bit. But, yeah. you know, still, we're talking about maybe three times over, you know, God knows how many years, 20, 30 years. Yeah. 
this is one of those films I've seen about ten times, and that's oh. rare. That's not something I do often, unless you're talking about something like, you know, Demolition Man, Conan, things that are, like, up there in my top, you know, whatever, Horror Rise from the Tomb, you know. True. This is, Frank Langella, Draco, for that matter, this is one of those things that really kind of stands out in a, a small number of films that I just go to again and again. And there's a reason for that. It's, it's that good. It's that good, yeah. It's that good, people. Check it out. So, the same year, actually, 1968, Candy. Oh. Just because you were caught in the act with that little taco twister, when I was your age, I had a jap for a lover. That little twerp and I were so hot for each other, they used to have to throw cold water on us. And with that inclusive statement of intent, we dive into the rather Justine-like world of Candy, and we had discussed Franco's bizarre take on Sod in both our trio of Jess Franco shows and our Klaus Kinsey show, Terry Southern's rather dated update of Voltaire's far more savvy Candide. Yet another in a decade filled with terrible sub-pornographic hippie head films <laughs> trying to be a legion of live-action Fritz the Cats, like the atrocious What from our Roman Polanski show. This stupid pseudo-skin flick features goofy-looking and believably dumb Iwa Alain of the equally asinine Death-Laden Egg as the moron who keeps on flaming the lusts of one absurd male after another, among whom are the hack-poet-come-celebutard rock star type McFisto Burton, whose blowhard baffle-gab incites Beatles-style mob adoration, fainting and outright worship. The college class of mini-skirted hippie girls literally fall down and kiss the ground he walks on. He fills her head with crap and comes on to her, but gets so loaded that he starts banging a mannequin, I kid you not, while she gets effectively raped by, quote, Spanish gardener Ringo Starr. Gomez Adams and the other Riddler from Batman, John Aston, is both her uptight professor father and his loose-living twin brother, and they all get assaulted by Ringo's religious biker gang sisters, who are Nicoletta Machiavelli of our Burt Reynolds show's Navajo Joe, Florinda Balkan of our Lucio Fulci show's Don't Torture a Duckling, and Mary Lou Tolo of our Clint Leeswood show's The Witches, who think Olan corrupted his morals. As Aston cracked his head open and needs a transfusion, they enlist the aid of crackpot military man Walter Matthau over at Joe Don Baker Show's Shirley Barrick and a Richard Benjamin Show's Sunshine Boys and House Calls, who agrees to help if he can impregnate all on. He winds up falling out of the plane to his death, and they get the crazy Dr. James Coburn of Looker and the last of Sheila from a Michael Crichton, Richard Benjamin, and Tony Perkins shows, who fucks and then tries to brand her. She winds up in a men's room, shot underground film, for Enrica Maria Salerno, that's a tongue twister, of our Dario Argento shows Burr with the crystal plumage, forced to melt against my skin with the hunchback Charles Aznavar of our Oliver Reed shows and then there were none, and gets scanned into sex with Maharishi wannabe Marlon Brando, whose defining moment was belching in Sophia Loren's face in our Laurentio's Countess from Hong Kong, and finally fucks another guru who turns out to be shades of Brian De Palma in his incest fixation, her father John Aston. I kid you not. Sugar Ray Robinson and Anita Pallenberg, who also cameo as Burton's chauffeur and a nurse, making this an over-budgeted, dumb, hippie sex film. Did I mention she's supposedly a space alien? It's stupid, unfunny, and about as sexy as falling asleep deceased, man. But it's watchable just because of all the crazy casting. Well, this, you know, this came out around the same time as Myra Breckenridge. Yes, it's another one. strange fucking movie. So Candy always led me to believe, Candy always led me to believe that they cut the hell out of this. They must have. And I'm not going to make assumptions, <laughs> but I bet, I bet, I bet there was a lot of fucking going on that they filmed <laughs> and they cut it because like, we want to release, release this thing 
It makes no sense. I have the book by Kara Southern. I think I do too, yeah. And I was like, you guys can't make a movie out of this. <laughs> and, and... Well, like I said, they made Justine and kept it relatively prim. You know, and that was Franco. And he had Klaus Kinski in the cast, for God's sakes. So I think they were thinking along those lines. But yeah, it's just... Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, Candy is a complete mystery. And... Yeah. And a bizarre misfire at that. A bizarre, a bizarre misfire. I agree. Any yes. film that Ringo Starr is in is guaranteed to be at least bizarre, if not unwatchable. <laughs> at least bizarre. Yeah. We'll yeah. that one. So, two minor films later. Raid on Rommel, 1971. The Italians are very stylish warriors, but at least they keep their women on a leash. And with that utterly clueless statement about Italian women, we enter the rather boring world of noir director Henry Hathaway's Raid on Rommel, which casts a French girl whose only notable credit was the cheap-ass Basil Rathbone kids' fantasy film The Magic Sword, namely Danielle Demetz, as a fiery Sicilian mistress of an Italian general who appears to be part of the British prisoners of war being transported in the North African campaign of World War II again. He loves that North African campaign for some reason. Oh, and they probably cast her because all she does is lay around until they apparently rape her off screen and dish her in the middle of the desert. No Italian girl I ever knew would settle for that shit. Well, maybe Sophia Loren perpetually playing endlessly gravid women in the much put upon story of the execrable two women, and for that matter marriage Italian style, who we did a whole show on despite that. Burton pretends to be injured and lets himself be caught to rally the troops into taking over the German division and their tanks so that he can redirect them towards and take out Rommel, the urbane Wolfgang Price of Mill of the Stone Women and Dr. Mabuza from our Edgar Wallace German Creamy show. It's surprisingly boring and cheap, with stock footage and few real locations, and there's a decidedly misogynist come homoerotic tone to the proceedings. There are several lines where various soldiers on both sides crow about excluding any women. This is only men. All men. Yeah, that's right out of the script. I'm only slightly paraphrasing here. Yeah, nothing going on there, right? Forget it. It seems to be like a belated sequel to The Desert Rats. Yes, but much worse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I saw it. I, I, I thought it was okay. I did not have a major issue with this. As far as adventure goes, it was okay. The next movie is weird. Did you see Villain? No, I did not. Oh, I missed that. Under Milkwood, the assassination of Trotsky and Hammersmith is out. Okay, hold on. I'm having such trouble tonight with the... Uh... What, the internet? Yeah, with the internet. Hold on. No we're, getting, we're getting there. Villain, 1971. So, it, <laughs> it's about a gay <laughs> mob boss played by Richard Burton who crosses the line, gets other people pissed off. And Ian McShane, Nigel Davenport, other people in this very strange movie. It's uh, directed by Michael Tushner. I don't know who that guy was. And it's like, I'm very surprised Burton would take a part where he would play such an obviously gay role. Very strange movie. I don't like it, but it's definitely interesting. Where did you at least catch up? Pick up Bluebeard. Bluebeard. Oh, so you missed Hammersmith is out? Yeah, that wasn't available. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is like Hammersmith. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass the Trotsky movie. <laughs> Hammersmith is out. Is, uh, <laughs> ay, 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 ay. So Richard Burton plays a psychotic patient 
who thinks he's somebody else. And Peter Ustinov, who directed, plays the, uh, a uh, physician who's running this mental hospital. And Richard Burton is bouncing off the fucking walls because he thinks he's somebody else, including Shakespearean actors and famous people of history. And you know who's in the movie? Who? Elizabeth Taylor. What a surprise. <laughs> what a surprise, right? One of the strangest fucking things I ever saw. And even the trailers were not not welcoming you to go to the movie to see it. They're like, what is this? <laughs> it was shouting and it was weird. And it was Bo Bridges, younger, then younger brother of Jeff. Is also in this, and, and and it was just like he he was like uh, I think one of the people in the psych wards, and and I think what the fuck is this? This is weird. Did you, did you catch Bluebeard? Yes, I did. Oh, so 1972 Bluebeard. Burton is the notorious lady co with the big Freudian secret in this gothic tale and Bartok opera turned sort of sex slash slasher comedy in the hands of noir director Edward Dimitrik of our Brigitte Bardot shows Shalico. Burton beds notorious bimbo Joey Heverton, the de facto final girl who uncovers in the vein of Rebecca or Jane Eyre, his former lover come victims. Rather than the usual discovery of slash cajoling the keys to the seven locked doors of his capacious castle slash estate, she just gets the obviously fragile and unbalanced Burton to confess at breakfast about his many affairs and their respective denouement. Aside from the sumptuous visuals and stunning set design, the real appear here is all the gorgeous women he beds, many if not all of whom display some measure of their ample charms, like Marilu Tolo as a very competitive feminist who's really a sub looking for a worthy master, the stunning Natalie Delon of When Bay Eight Bells Tall, whose virginal naivete puts him off, so she orders a hooker, Sybil Danning of Howling Two and Cosi's Hercules, to show her the ropes and winds up in a sapphic tryst, a horribly quaffed Raquel Welch of our Frank Sinatra show's Lady in Cement and our Richard Benjamin and Tony Perkins show's Last of Sheila as the girl who wants to fuck in a chapel or mausoleum, I couldn't tell which. Cute Agostina Belli of the Fifth Chord, Night of the Devils, and Revolver from our Polizio Tesci and Oliver Reed shows as a three-spirited nymphette. Verna Lisi of The Statue and How to Murder Your Wife as an annoying musical singer. <laughs> and a pre-porn, pre-prostitution Karen Schubert of our Emmanuel shows... Black Emmanuel. Well, there you go. That's good timing. <laughs> uh, of our Emmanuel shows, Black Emmanuel and Emmanuel around the world. Even Heatherton looks pretty decent and more or less in the altogether. There really aren't any less than festering ladies in the cast, despite Lisey, Welsh, and Schubert's decidedly unfortunate frizzy fro hair disasters herein. But holy shit, the long Tolo and Bella are to die for. Too bad they all tried to make it with an incel who can't get it up. Yep, that's the big secret that makes him awful all these stunners who throw themselves at him. Uh, try Viagra or go see a fucking shrink, maybe? But, yeah, I mean, it's visually sumptuous, and these women are amazing lookers, and they do shed some clothing, so there's that. But as a film, it's, like, kind of a mess. <laughs> What's your take? Oh, it's kind of a mess. Uh... And Joey Heatherton, don't forget, they made fun of her as Lola Heatherton in ongoing skits on SCTV, so you get an idea what kind of person she was. Yeah, Joey, Joey Heatherton. <laughs> yeah. Uh... I mean, all the ladies look amazing, and I always thought this was a weird, strange movie because you got a great actor who sometimes slips. <laughs> he, slip, he will slip more in coming years. But the cast, the supporting cast here of women is, like, fucking amazing. How they even 
get everybody and afford everyone to be in this picture. And it's just like, what am I watching? What, what, what is this? Although they did talk most of them into various uh, forms of undress. So like, Bluebeard is a movie to see. If you are a fan of all these actresses, which you have named, um, then there's more. This is like one of Sybil Danning's also claim to fame. You know, she's been around for fucking decades. <laughs> I like Sybil Danning. You know, she shows up on Facebook and she's like, oh, somebody died. I, I, I met them 14, 23 years ago. And we were in the same movie. Stop that, will you? I interviewed her. She was a nice lady, but she's kind of whack. But yeah, Bluebeard is a strange movie. I do realize they did a uh, Blu-ray or 4K of that in the past two or three years. You guys might want to check that out. Other than that, mm, not sure. Okay, so next up, I did not see Massacre in Rome. Unfortunately, I did not see The Klansman either. A lot of these films are hard to find. Oh, you didn't see The Klansman? No. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right, Terrence Young, who did a, a Bond movie or two, and, you know, he... <laughs> Got Lee Marvin, Richard Burton, Cameron Mitchell. Yes, that Cameron Mitchell. O.J. Simpson. Yes, that guy. And then we're going to do a movie about uh, Luciana Paluzzi is in it, too. We're going to do a movie about, uh, you know, Southern issues and Burton's playing the sheriff. And all these guys look fucking drunk. <laughs> Lola Falana is in it. Linda Evans is in it. Who else is in this thing? Um, oh, gosh. Doesn't matter. It's just like it was like one of the most racist. And here's a here's a picture though where so stories are legendary. I don't know how true they are or how factual they are. That Richard Burton and Lee Marvin were having drinking contests. <laughs> and there's de and Cameron Mitchell, and there's definite slurring, slurring of words. <laughs> And you could see that when you watch this. So, you know, you got a racist Southern group involved in... I don't want to talk about this movie. It's so bad. But <laughs> it, it's it's a legendary bad movie. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. So next up is Brief Encounter, 1974. Aging but still quite attractive Italian sex spot Sophia Loren, who we devoted an entire show to, supposedly falls for a craggy-faced late career Richard Burton at first sight in this dull, lifeless, and flatly shot British TV movie. John Lemercier of Guy of the Devil, Confessions of a Window Cleaner, The Italian Job, Who is Killing the Great Chefs of Europe, also shows up long enough to get a paycheck, and we've done those films in God. I know we had a film on uh, David Hemmings. We had a Keeping the British End Up show on the British uh, Sexploitation Slap and Dickle films. We did, obviously, a Michael Caine show. And we covered the great chefs in both our George Siegel and Jackie Bissett shows. The only thing of interest here otherwise, other than who the fuck thought this was a good idea, is that the Burton role was supposed to be played by the equally unappealing oldster Robert Shaw of Jaws, or Jackie Bissett shows The Deep, the 1977 Black Sunday, and From Russia with Love from a true of Bond shows. Who cast this thing again? Directed by an Alan Bridges of no appreciable credits, I don't believe we even discussed this one on our Sophia Loren show, so you get the idea of just how inconsequential it really is. 
I, I missed this one. I'm sorry. I didn't catch this one. Yeah, they put it out on one of these labels. I don't know if it's Scorpion or one of these, quote, boutique labels put it out. I'm like, why? <laughs> so, 1977, Exorcist to the Heretic. Mm-hmm. Linda Blair of the hilarious Airport 75, reviewed over at thirdicinema.wordpress.com, and Roller Boogie is back and all grown up in this oddity from Deliverance, Zardoz, and Excalibur's John Borman, and we covered the first two of those in our Burt Reynolds, Sean Connery, and Charlotte Rampling shows. Even the cast is weird, with James Earl Jones of the Laura Gems of Bushido Blade and Alan Quartermain in the Last City of Gold from our Canon Film Show, Ned Squeal Like a Pig, Baby from our Burt Reynolds show's Deliverance, Max von Sydow of our George Siegel Show's Quiller Memorandum and Night Visitor, which was reviewed over at thirdofcinema.wordpress.com, and troubled Dana Plato of the Child Stars turned Jailbirds cast sitcom Different Strokes, mm-hmm. all effectively cameo as part of this grand mal seizure of a gobbledygook screenplay. Apparently, Burton is yet another priest who's not sure about his faith anymore, so they send him to do an exorcism, which he botches and lets the girl immolate herself. So the church, and all its infinite wisdom and papal infallibility, immediately sends him to investigate the death of Father Merrin from the first film, and prove his heretical account true, because the church is trying to go all folk mass success won't pretend Satan doesn't exist. Uh, frets the logic much? Meantime, Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I kid you not, it's Louise Fletcher, is doing then-popular psychic experiments on Blair and hooks the priest up to the machine so that they can share brainwaves and some crackpot shit, which gives him psychic powers. He predicts a fire before it happens and sees weird visions of Marin exercising a kid in Africa who grew up to be entomologist James Earl Jones, who he visits for a lecture on locusts. Yay? Blair makes the mute autistic Plato able to speak, there's a low-speed taxi chase. The devil comes out to old man Burton looking like Blair. There's a cheap Luigi Cochi and Argento's Phenomena special effect of locusts. Roll credits. What the fuck? If you're saying none of that makes a lick of sense, either logically or in terms of narrative structure, your mind isn't deceiving you. While amusing in a very strange way, this film was panned so roundly it took nearly 15 years before Hollywood's brainless regurgitation machine even attempted a sequel. And in fact, this film is widely considered among the worst big-budget films ever lensed, which it isn't by a long shot. By modern film standards, this is Oscar bait. But that's like digging to the bottom of a dumpster that's been sitting in the hot sun for a month and saying, Hey, I found half a hamburger. I think it's still edible. But by 70s standards? Yeah, it's illogical, irrational, and nonsensical on every level. What's your take? It's illogical, irrational, but I I, I didn't hate it. And we have to remember that the, the studio cut the hell out of this. And it wasn't until a little while later we got the original uncut John Bowman version. It's a, you know, any of these Exorcist films, Exorcist 1, 2, and 3, are difficult pictures to follow. And for this one, you have the obviously stentorian vocalizations of Richard Burton playing a priest. And, and it's like, wow. You know, first of all, you're like, you're thrown back by that. You know, and, and it's like you got you got everybody pretty much back from the first picture. And uh, I didn't hate it. And when I saw the longer cut, I kind of liked it a little bit more. It's still very strange. It's still very weird. Yeah. Speaking of which, 1977, which I believe the same year, Equus. Mm. 
Burton is this seriously fucked up shrink pulled in to figure out what the fuck is wrong with nappy frilled freak Peter Firth of our Toby Hooper show's Life Force who runs around naked throughout and jacking off the horses which he also rides naked before blinding them because his mother is another MAGA type religious freak who dumps all her hangups about sex onto him Jenny Agater of Logan's Run, American Werewolf in London, and our Donald Sutherland and Michael Caine shows The Eagle Has Landed is here for eye candy as the girl who tries to take him to a porno and then fuck him in the stables, while scary old Joan Plowart of the unwatchable Sting play for today's Brimstone and Treacle, and Colin Blakely of our Hammer Show's Vengeance of She and our Robert Mitchum show's Big Sleep remake are the geriatric, quote, parents. Apparently, Burton is so fucked up in his sexless marriage and failing career that he actually admires and envies this freak as sexual repression, inclinations towards bestiality, and self-created pagan delusions having screwed up dreams of torture-killing kids. I shit you not. Unbelievably, this turd tales from none other than Sidney Lumet, who directed films like our Sean Connery shows The Anderson Tapes and The Offense, our Michael Caine shows Death Trap, and our Al Pacino shows Serpico on Dog Day Afternoon, and won multiple Oscar and BAFTA nominations and a few Golden Globes, proving once again that any film that receives such an award is instantly therefore wholly unworthy of watching. Horrifyingly, I remember being shown this abomination of desolation in school, and I remember high school quite well. I really believe this was in grammar school, which is closer to this film's release and the height of its critical infamy. Either way, I watched this in sheer disbelief, wondering why anyone would consider even releasing this piece of celluloid shit, much as they give it such accolades and find it worthy of showing to children or early teens besides. It should be burned at the stake, quite honestly, mm-hmm. just like the aforementioned Brimstone and Treacle, whose plot I'd rather not even discuss in a public forum is that repulsive. Shows exactly what kind of a person Sting is and always was, by the way. So what's your take on the stinker? Uh, rough. I, I saw this twice live. I saw it with uh, Anthony Perkins on Broadway, and I saw it with Richard Burton on Broadway, live. It's based on Anthony Schaffer, who did uh, some really good, twisty thrillers. Uh, What was that one with uh, Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve? Oh, my gosh. Death, uh, death something or whatever. Anyway, I, I wasn't crazy about it, but it was like, well, I've never seen Anthony Perkins live, so I went to see it. And I went back to see Burton do this. And the movie's rough because yeah. because it's not live, and the movie's rough. And it wasn't a great idea to do this kind of thing. And Sidney Lumet, I have I, I have to say, is a good director, but it's it's a very strange play to adapt to film. And we we have that. So Medusa Touch. Yes, Medusa Touch, 1978. He may have been strange, but not that way, I would think. Jack Gold, whose only other film of any note was the similarly terrible Who from our Elliot Gould show, mm. drafts this snoozeworthy TV movie-style British yawn fest where Burton is a novice who seemingly gets killed in a home invasion. Lino Ventura of The Monocle, The Great Spy Chase, and The Veloci Papers from our Eurospy and Charles Bronson shows is the French detective investigating his life and backstory. Lee Remick of The Satan Bug, The Detective, and Telephone from our Michael Crichton, Frank Sinatra, Charles Bronson, and Donald Pleasant shows is the shrink he was seeing. Gordon Jenkins of The Professionals, Casting the Runes, The Ipcris File, and The Great Escape from our British cult television, Michael Caine, Steve McQueen, Donald Pleasant, and Charles Bronson shows, and Claudius himself, Jerk. Jacoby, why they made him a stutterer is beyond me, also appear. 
The whole plot here, beyond the effective framing story that has Ventura investigating the situation, is an Omen slash Patrick slash Sanders slash The Fury thing, and we discussed the latter film on our Brian De Palma show, where Burton was a Bible-beaten child with a Carrie-esque mother, another film from our Palma show, who has weird psychic powers that let him off those who piss him off through ostensible coincidental deaths, disasters, and dismemberments. The only good part is the finale, where Burton is straight-up Patrick, laid up in traction, but causing a church to collapse on everyone, and saying his next target is a nuclear power plant, ready and willing to set off a holocaust with his supposed powers. This one is sleepy even by British supernatural horror standards of the 70s. Stuff like The Stone Tape, Omega Factor, even Children of the Stones are far more gripping and thrilling than this. So it's an odd one. What's your take? It's an odd one. I wish it was better, but it, but it wasn't. You know, <laughs> um, I saw this many years ago, and I always thought it was like, I wish it was better. You know, I saw a VHS tape of this, and it was like, yeah, it's not quite. I see what they're going for, but mm-hmm. you know, I can't fault him. I I, I just think I, at this time everybody's slumming. Yeah. So next up is a better film, The Wild Geese, yeah. 1978. Some of you know me already. Those of you who don't, you're in for a great big fucking surprise. <laughs> We covered this late 70s war-slash-heist film in our Richard Harris show. Directed by Andrew McLaughlin of our Joe Don Baker show's Mitchell and our Tony Perkins show's Folks, this is a fun and silly take on similar fare like our Sophia Loren show's Firepower or our Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood show's Dirty Dozen, where, in this case decommissioned, military types are gathered to man a suicide squad-like extraction operation, this time saving a kidnapped African politician from an Idi Amin type. Both Burton and Roger Moore are professional hitmen. Burton, a former colonel, and Moore, I'm not sure, but he gives a drug lord a fitting come up as before he's recruited to the mission. Mm-hmm. Richard Harris is a former military turned single parent homebody who also joins the team. Stuart Granger of our Eurospot shows Requiem for a Secret Agent and Patrick Allen from Night of the Big Heat are the government types who bring Burton and company in on the mission. And Frank Finley of our Toby Hooper shows Life Force and our Amica shows The Deadly Bees is an Irish priest come missionary who helps them on site. It's fairly silly and a bit predictable, but it's a fun guys film action entertainment, and I certainly enjoyed seeing all these bloviating thespians and oddball character actors working together in this milieu. This is like a Who Knew movie. I remember I saw this in the theater, not expecting a lot. I was like, okay, you know, Roger Moore, Bond, and Richard Burton, Richard Harris, and I was like, I lo- I enjoyed the hell out of it, and I was like, wow, it works so well. And yeah. big surprise, because it's, 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 you know, we with 1978, you know, by this time, we're getting a lot of Italian adventure ripoffs, you know, Italian produced adventure ripoffs of this kind of thing. Actually, post Wild Geese, <laughs> <laughs> there were all those things with David Warbeck. Do you remember? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Arkham Sun God and God knows what else. Yeah, this set off a whole fucking. Subgenre, <laughs> and who knew? I enjoyed the hell out of this. You know, I, I, you know, a bunch of older guys: Burton, Moore, Harris, Hardy Krueger. All right, we we all remember Hardy from Edgar Wallace and uh, you know, a bunch of other things, and Stuart Granger, and and it was so effective because it worked. And the thing that was nice about it is, like, toward the end of the movie, like, well, this guy didn't make it. This guy didn't make it. This guy didn't make it. It was kind of like a nice little thing because it wasn't that far out of the uh, realm of 
movies, cinema is they try to make things to appeal to people, and and then uh, we get that. And you put a bunch of big name or whatever actors in a film, and uh, so you, you're expecting a lot. That they they didn't do this so much again until like uh, the Magnificent Seven remake with uh, with the last one with Chris Platt, where almost all the cast died. So <laughs> yeah, the Wild Geese is a movie where almost. All the cast dies. Those that show up near the end are like, you know, there's a high adventure thing in this movie. And there's also a very sweetness thing. Like Hardy Krueger, yeah, they're, they're in this element where, is it South Africa? Yes, I believe it is. Yeah, you know, he's, he's calling all the guys all these racist names because mm-hmm. you know, he's German. And the guy's putting up with it. And, and, by the end of the film, like he, he will risk his life to save that man because he realizes that man has a worth to his life. I mean, there, there's so many deep things going on with this movie. It's not your just generic action movie. I mean, it's it's really one of the, one of the better ones. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. So uh, he does a couple more films I did not see. Yeah, Circle of Two, Love Spell, Absolution, Breakthrough. I don't know sure what those are. But then he does Wagner in 1983. <sighs> Yawn. Yep, it's another one of those starfucker jobs filled with hoity-toity actors like Lawrence Olivier of our Michael Caine show Sleuth and the Frank Langella Dracula, Ralph Richardson of the Boris Karloff of the Ghoul and our Amica shows. Oh, I remember. I saw Tales of the Crypt, yep. Jean Gilgood of Caligula and the Frank Langella Sphinx. Vanessa Redgrave of our David Hemming shows Blow Up in a Quiet Place in the Country. Gabriel Byrne of Excalibur, Gothic, and End of Days from our Ken Russell and Arnold Schwarzenegger shows. And uh, Prunella Scales of Faulty Towers, <laughs> all of whom take various bit parts in this sleepy, flat-looking biopic of the contentious composer, who worked for royalty while serving as the face of an uprising against them, ran off to France caused scandals both operatic and personal, had run-ins with folks like Meyerbeer and Nietzsche because he was a fucking anti-Semite prick. You get the idea. Directed by a Tony Palmer who never seems to have directed anything other than concert films like 200 Motels, this endless nine-hour stinker of a miniseries typically got plenty of praise from pretentious brown-noser types hoping to hobnob with pseudo-intellectual assholes like the parties in Annie Hall or Richard Benjamin Show's Diary of a Mad Housewife or those idiots in the ads who act like seeing fucking Shen Yun was the second coming of Jesus instead of plate-spinning Chinese acrobats at Broadway ticket prices. But in reality... <laughs> but in reality, it's pretty goddamn unwatchable, save for a quick cheesecloth news scene where he bangs Redgrave. This thing is atrocious. I cannot believe they released it. But all right, what's your take? <laughs> I I remember seeing that. I haven't seen it for a long time, so I can't really comment on it. Yeah, I don't blame you for that one. And now we come to 1984, yeah. which was in 1984. If telling you enough, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. And with this prescient warning about Fox News, the New York Post, and other right-wing propaganda outlets, we enter the literally Orwellian world of big data, I mean brother, political correctness, I mean newspeak, and cancel culture on both sides of the political fence. Mm. Nothing the party says is true. The party wants you to believe we are at war to channel your aggressions away from their rifle target, the party. The real rulers of state are unknown, faceless manipulators who, because they are not known, are able to wield power without hindrance. You are being made into obedient, stupid slaves of the party. The party doesn't serve the people. It only serves itself. 
wow. And if those few opening lines don't describe the corporatocracy, right-wing propaganda, and the modern Republican Party to a T, you're already one of the brainwashed mega cultists who scream out truth-speaking Goldstein during the rather on-the-nose hate week. Directed by a Michael Radford of no notable credits otherwise, this grim dystopia features John Hurt, Caligula and I, Claudius, and stars a film's disparate as Tygen's The Ghoul from Africa show, Alien, and a modern-day voodoo film, Skeleton Key, is doomed protagonist Winston and cute Susanna Hamilton, whose only other credits are the play for today atrocity Brimstone and Treacle, which has rather strangely come up three times in this show, and the awful test from our Roman Polanski show, is Winston's fuck buddy and free-spirited fellow resistance fighter, at least on a very personal internal level. There are no effective guerrilla opposition to the state and party here. And while she has no curves or breasts to speak of, she does have one of those cute pixie haircuts and the hairiest bush this side of the heroine in Eurocine's <laughs> Orloff and the Invisible Man from a Vera LaFrance strange cult film show and shows it off frequently. Berlin is barely in this one, and it's actually his last film, as the apparent resistance leader and mentor O'Brien, who turns out to be the double agent and high-ranking party member who betrays, tortures, brainwashes, separates, and breaks their spirit and connection to each other and resistance to the party per se. It's a depressing novel, but a prescient one, at the time being presented unironically on the literal year the book takes place as an indictment of Thatcherite England, but it's actually far more apropos in modern-day America than it ever was then, which says something. Yeah, it's really something else. It's a good film. If you haven't read the book, and even if you have, you'd probably want to see this one. So what's your take? He was dying by yes. this time of uh, brain cancer, and uh, it was very evident that he was uh, losing weight and uh, just not doing well. Now, John Hurt, everyone knows from Alien and I, Claudius and all these other films who can really convey a tortured soul well on film. I mean, it's a rough fucking movie to watch because you're you're watching this film and, and, and Burton, Richard Burton was probably because he knew he was going out. I always I always believed he was at the top of his game here. He knew he was going out. He knew his, his light was dimming, and he probably decided to, like, I'm going to give it my all. Mm-hmm. He's working with a guy who uh, a few years earlier was an elephant man in, in the moat film mm-hmm. that few few can top for as far as performance. Yes. Yeah. So he, he knew he's working with this guy, and, and I always personally believed that Richard Burton was, was ill knowing his time was limited. I think they even knew his time was limited when he worked on this. And had to, you know, if you guys ever see any of the versions of 1984, there's one early one with Peter Cushing where he's a fucking dick. <laughs> and we all love Peter Cushing, correct? Yes. And and the earliest BBC version of 1984, Peter Cushing is like same same character. He's like evil incarnate. And 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 there's the one with Edmund O'Brien. And there's someone who's evil incarnate. So, like, Richard Burton is like, I'm trying to be your friend, but I'm evil incarnate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I agree. Burton, even on his last legs here, very obviously and admittedly, does a much better job than those guys did. <laughs> yeah, no. Very nuanced portrayal, considering what he's supposed to very be. Very nuanced. And, and, yes, it's a talky film. I mean, it's not the kind of... Guys, if you don't know what 1984 is about or what it is going to mean mm-hmm. um we we both i think we both recommend it yeah uh, and and you know the the harry bush of the lead actress aside um 
You mentioned it. I didn't. Hey, it's really, like I said, other than that girl from uh, Orloff versus the Invisible Man, which is really amazing. I've never seen anything like that. This girl's there, like right with her. Yeah, I appreciate oh, it. We should, we should do a show on that. Harry Bush's? Harry Bush's The Bikers. That would be fun. That would be a fun one. <laughs> you won't find any as bushy as those two. I'll say that. Anyway, yeah, we, we, we kind of wrap it up with this because uh, it, it's... <laughs> on that note. <laughs> right? It's the last episode uh, show. Yeah, that's all right, so uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Richard Burton. Next time, we will be talking Hugh Grant. Yeah. And if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. And, of course, we're on Podbean, thirdicinema.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes. Uh, you can look us up there on Spotify or on Amazon Podcasts, among other places, under the Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Or if you're particular with the iTunes people, look up ID 55340244. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So anything else you want to close out about? No, no. We, we hope you enjoyed this uh drawing chat about Richard Burton and his films and uh, hopefully you'll join us for the Hugh Grant show yeah we've certainly done some interesting ones lately and he's another one that's like what they're doing Hugh Grant okay <laughs> so yes why not what the hell so uh, yeah I guess that is it so hopefully uh, your chiller experience one way or the other will go well for you alright so feel better with all the nonsense going down hopefully you'll figure it out and it won't be as bad come, you know, whatever, a week or two from now. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Take care.
Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself, discuss the beloved, the Katie, 
the career and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Goldmine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Hello. How are you? Oh, God. That's how bad things are. Jeez, oh, it's... <laughs> I don't know. It's just been one hell of a week and beyond. This... <laughs> My wife took off a couple of days because okay. we were celebrating something. And, you know, it started off pretty nice. You know, Saturday was nice enough. Nice stuff eating out. We were watching some old movies we hadn't seen in a while, including one of the ones that we'll be discussing next time, uh, Man from Uncle movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. and, we, and we saw Scott Pilgrim again, which we both love. We had some other stuff. You know, it was nice. It was a nice start. Well, Saturday night at about 11.35 or something, all of a sudden our friends upstairs have been, you know, relatively under control for at least since her birthday, which is exactly when they decided to act up last time. Bang! Crash! Boom! Like, what the oh. fuck? All right, so now they're moving furniture and shit again in the middle of the night. All right, fine. Whatever. So that was annoying enough, and then the fucking music starts. Boom, 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 boom. You know, rap shit over the fucking place. I was like, oh, my God, you got to be kidding me. Now, it's not as loud as it was in the past, you know, when he was, like, literally rocking two, two floors, hallways. But it's still fucking loud, because you know, I'm worried underneath this asshole. And, you know, it's not just like, okay, I'm hearing, like, you know, people mumbling or people walking around. This is like, you know, the bass is throbbing and all of that. All right, whatever. There was a point, which we discussed in the past, where my walls and floors were shaking, and pictures are moving, you know, grass is rattling in the bathroom. Well, it's not that bad anymore, but still. So I'm like, oh, for God's sakes, all right. So not too long after, I'm like, yeah, hell, let's just go to sleep if we can. <laughs> and you're hearing this crap. And it went all night long. I oh. mean, I woke up at 3, it's still going. I woke up at like 5-something, it's still going. And, you know, I didn't usually wake up this many freaking times in the night, so it was probably from him. I woke up at like 7.20 or something, it's still going. So I wrote originally when, you know, since people know this has been an ongoing thing, and other people have been complaining on his floor and knocking on his door and talking to the management company, and yeah, the management company was going and sending him notices and fining them, and apparently they just, like, they at least got fined twice. Wow. And from what I hear, I don't know if they go right away to that amount, you know, sometimes they escalate, but they go up to 250 bucks, so they're getting hit, you know, with maybe 500 bucks already. It's still going. I'm like, what the fuck is with these people? So, uh, and this is going on since what, last August when we first talked about this? You know, maybe yeah, September? Yeah. All right. And, you know, on and off. Sometimes they'll, like, act up for a bit and then they'll calm down and they'll go on another drug binge or something and they'll go for, like, two or three days straight. Then it'll stop or it'll slow down. You get, they'll keep it in certain hours and you know, whatever. Or it'll just go away. And it's totally fine. Like, the last couple of days have been fine. All right. So, I'm telling them, I was like, you know, I'm, this is already going on. I waited for about 24 hours. I says, look, this has been on for 24 hours straight. I'm telling, like, the, the management company, the board, I'm, like, you're copying everybody. It's like, I'm betting that they're on a fucking cocaine binge or meth or whatever the hell they're doing. Because I'm sure this is going to go for, like, 48 hours. Sure enough, 48 hours later, I'm writing them again. I said, I told you, they're still going. Do something about this. You know, we can't sleep. We can't fucking relax here. You know, we're going out, and those things are fine. But you can't stay out forever. You know, out for a couple hours, you know, whatever the hell. Like, all day, all night, you know, whatever. So... 
finally, you know, one of the people on the board is like, you know, really friendly for a change. And like the rest of them are just a bunch of assholes and do nothings. Was talking to my wife, and because you know my wife's going around, we're all talking to anybody we meet. It's like, okay, you know, we knew on the fourth floor. Here we go. Even if we never talked to you before, do you hear this freaking music all the time? Is it like rocking your place? Have you complained? Have you knocked on the door? Have you talked to other, you know, the board or the condo or whatever? All right, so finally she's like you know what i'll go with my wife this is i don't know if i want to go because i'm going to either say something really fucking nasty i'm going to storm past them into their place and see what the hell is going on or things are going to really escalate because i am just you know first of all me and second i'm fucking pissed this is just insane you know they're wrecking our lives here when they keep pulling the shit so my wife's like all right you know i'll go up and grab you know one of these people here who will offer to like okay well, i'll go with you i'll kind of broker this thing and see what the hell's going on if we can fix anything otherwise you know i don't know what the even the management company's like at this point you know, you might have to start calling the cops on like what the hell's a piece of paper gonna do everything else has failed other people have tried this everybody's gone through all this shit you find them you've notified them you know this isn't gonna stop them yeah they're the management company they're the landlords yeah. exactly well, exactly so it's like you know you can't do anything come on you know they gave me shit when i was like doing a little bit of construction fixing my place not even like hardcore stuff it's like we put in a new bathroom you know, a long time ago or at least parts of it you know we did put a new cabinet in for the sink we put a new toilet in you know that kind of shit we had them go and fix up the tub every time they're giving a shit oh god we can't take this either. we can't take the smell we can't take this does this guy have a certificate yes he does downstairs complaining you're making too much noise you know what it was i had a fucking skill saw for like five minutes because i'm working on the door no longer fit the toilet that they had in because it's like wider and so i had to cut a notch into the door itself now you can't see it when you shut it it's not like there's light coming through but it hits the jam and otherwise it wouldn't open and close you have a door stuck perpetually open or closed or either way so while I'm doing this, I get complaints. Oh, no, we can't do this. I says, look, I'm trying to fix my damn place up here. We're almost done. You tell me that I can never freaking do anything up here again? No, you can't. I'm like, holy shit, really? So this is the kind of stuff. And, you know, they stopped me from playing the guitar here. The only times I really plug in for years now, because I used to do it all the time, because they were yelling about that, is when I recorded the show themes. That's it. There was one other time, like a week or so ago, where I was just like, fuck this, and I just plugged in during the day for a little bit. But normally, I don't use my amplifiers. It's ridiculous. Why are they taking up space? Well, yeah, if I ever get to play out with anybody again. So, you know, okay, this is how the place runs, whatever. They suck. They're all folks, whatever. People are complaining about Fine, I get this. Why am I, and presumably everybody else, taking all this shit from these people, but these motherfuckers that everybody in the world is complaining about and know this is a serious problem, not saying a word. And my wife's like, you know what it is, right? It's, it's got to be. It's like, they're afraid because they're the guy is a black guy. And he's with a, an overweight white woman. Oh, really? Like, okay. Yeah. So they're like, it's probably they're afraid they don't want to like open a can of worms. Like, oh, look, it's a race thing. I'm like, well, you know, I'm talking to one person. I'm like, okay, they're going to make this into that kind of a stink. There's another reason I don't want to go up there. Because I don't want to turn into one of those kind of, not just a tip for tap. Like, oh, you know, you don't like this because of that. I'm like, look at, and my point of my wife, like, really? That, you know, we're going to go there? Come on. So. <laughs> That's so funny. My next door neighbors in the house next door. Mm -hmm. Guy works for animal control and, and yeah, she's she's a big white girl. He's a black guy, big black guy. Yeah. He's pretty cool. He's always stoned one day he <laughs> his guy dropped off uh, his pot in front of the in front of the house in a car and he goes, I got my pot, I got he starts singing. I'm like, Dude, <laughs> Oh, there's so much weed in her. I told you about that, how the whole kitchen yeah, 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 yeah. But he's pretty friendly, but yo, know, that's the thing, like if you see the guy who used to live downstairs when I first moved in this building. Yeah. Was similar. Okay. <laughs> she 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 was like, not full figure, but she was like, 
you would definitely hit that white girl. <laughs> and 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 you know, he's big black, he's very friendly though. Yeah. You know? Well, that's the thing. I mean, if they're okay, and then you can this. talk to them. That's that's how they're perceiving it. They don't want to deal exactly with exactly right. So we're like, what the fuck are we supposed to do here? So like I said, this woman from the board or wherever hell that was like friendly with my wife. They, she's like, hey, I'll go upstairs with you. So they went up there. I don't know when it was, like, you know, on Monday, I think. Three times they go up there, knock on the door, and ring the doorbell, whatever. He doesn't answer the door. So, you know, the woman's like, I hear them walking around in there. So I'm like, oh, great, they're cowards besides everything else. So finally, I think it was like Tuesday night or something stupid, they do this again. Because, yeah, the woman's got a life. She can't always be around. She's doing other stuff, whatever. She's like, okay, well, you know, give me a call when you think you're ready to roll. Oh, we can't do it now. So finally they go up there and do this. And they finally got the guy. Because I'm sitting here waiting. I've like got my phone. I was like, you know, if you need me to come up, I'll just text me. It's just, you know, it's probably better if I just sit this one out unless you, you know, run into a problem here. So they go up there, and the woman apparently did a really great job. She's like, yeah, I probably couldn't have, like, you know, said this stuff as good as she did. She's like, you know, everybody down the hall is hearing this shit. You know, what the hell's going on? Whatever. So they told some cockamamie story, apparently. And I asked my wife, she's like, look. The story is one thing. What was the soft take on this? You know, what, what was you, when you look at this guy and you heard him talking, is he full of shit? Because I think that this sounds a little kind of questionable. You know, explain some things we were wondering about. Because, you know, it's, I told you, it's like all this fucking drug music that was going on for hours and hours and hours and weird noises like space things and people mumbling and yelling and whatever the hell else. I was like, what the hell is this? This guy must be insane. So apparently he claims... That he's, you know, some, yeah, he's got like uh, small dreads, not like a Jamaican type, but it was like, I don't know if you know uh, NXT wrestling, but Wesley, like that kind of, yeah, the yeah, short yeah, dreads yeah. that stick up or whatever. Okay. I didn't meet the guy. I'm just going by West description. He's like, yeah, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know how he gets paid for this. He does sampling or some shit. He's like, yeah, sometimes people come by and I'll start like screaming or whatever because they want to add this in. And it sounded like he was a Foley guy. I'm like, if he's doing Foley, you know, I'd be mean, like, what's his face? Uh, Travolta and Blowout when we talk about the Palma show. Yeah, yeah. It's like they're right. going outside and doing shit. So, all right, so he thinks he's a DJ or something, but apparently he just does this weird fucking loops and samples or whatever, and then just kind of does them over and over again until he gets whatever he gets, and then gives them these people, solves them or whatever the hell. I don't know. It sounds weird, but okay, let's explain how strange the fucking music was and how it just kept going on and on, if it's true. But, you know... <sighs> You can't do that inside yeah. the house. Well, that was it. They, both of them are like, well, can't you use headphones? Can't you, like, set up a little, you know, soundproof studio? Because it's a small place like ours. It's, you know, it's the same mm-hmm. line. Like, you know, can you do anything? Oh, no, you know, I need to have the whatever because you don't really hear it right through the headphones. And I kind of understand because you know how I music is when you listen to headphones and hear it live. But it's like, this is fucking crazy. So he's like, well, you know, okay, I'll, I'll keep an eye on this. And they're claiming they still hear fucking music from us. I'm like, how is this possible? <laughs> music doesn't travel upwards. Sound doesn't travel upwards. It always goes downwards, right? Uh, I can see the person below us yelling. And I asked her a couple times, like, you, you don't hear anything, right? It's not a problem. No, if you don't hear nothing, fine. But she's also a board member, by the way. I'm like, oh, no, we have no problems. Well, the, the guys downstairs, downstairs like, oh. do. They, they... I've told you before that they blast their things so much they tripped the uh, circuit breaker in the house. Yes, you told me that, yes. <laughs> they did it again, too. And Holy shit. You know, we don't have our, our departmental meetings too often, once a month, but yeah. like, damn, like boom, 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 boom. <laughs> exactly. And they come in and work late. So two nights ago... I don't know, I drank too much water or something, so I had to make a couple of pee visits more than usual to the bathroom. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? It's 1230. <laughs> <laughs> I came in from work and high. Yep. Yeah, they go through cases. That's what we figured. They go through cases of beer, too. So. 
we figured they came home because it was like you know Saturday and I forget what the hell it was. Oh, it was Earth Day. Mm. It's like maybe they were out doing whatever the hell celebrating. Came home fucking loaded and you know, got a whole bag of meth or whatever the hell, a couple of kilos of coke, and that's it. Now they're gonna start doing their shit. And like I said, they last over forty hours straight. Nobody's up all day and all night playing music. This doesn't happen unless you're really doing some fucking you know meth blow speed something like that. But anyway. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll offer to do, like, a sound test or whatever the hell, you know. You can, like, ping me. The one good thing, he says, okay, I'll give you my number. You can text me next time, you know, it sounds too loud or whatever the hell. That's a step. Yeah, like I said, it was a step. We went forward. But, you know, I don't know. It still sounded like a lot of horseshit to me for the most part. And uh, it was like, well, all right, listen, at least. Is that all? What's up with this friend of yours? Oh, that fucking There's so much stuff going on. My uh, my thing that I had to do with the you know, I'll tell you about the therapy thing I was doing for my arm. They ended that. They're like, okay, well that's it. We only gave you a couple more visits, and I just finished that one yeah, last night. Yeah, they only they only cover so many of them. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, well, you know, look, we did another uh, you know evaluation or whatever the hell and range of motion. Right. He says, look, go through it again. Yeah, he's like, yeah. let me see if we can submit it again for like you know the third time, see if they make a different. Because it's like it all depends on whose desk the thing falls on, really, and what an asshole they are. You know, basically, otherwise, it's over with, and i got to see the stupid doctor in a couple of weeks and probably go have an operation at this point. But regardless, that was going on. And then in the middle of all this shit, I think it was before the, the incident there Saturday night that went through Tuesday. Can you believe that? Like four days worth of this bullshit. But he's going, and I don't want to get into it too much on the air, but okay. you know, no, it's all right. It's, it's... Anybody who listened to the old that I love, my old co-host, who we even dedicated a show to recently, the Belushi show. <sighs> well, he kind of, there was an incident where he kind of vanished off of social media for a while. And Is this your, your friend Matt? Yes, exactly. Okay. All and right. I'm kind of wondering, like, Jesus here, right? You know, what, what's going on? So I'm like stalking him on, you know, I don't usually do that shit, but I'm like checking out all, all his accounts. Like, hey, what's going on? Is he posting anywhere? The only thing he posted was about some weed show. He was like, some kind of pot-based comedy show or some shit he was going to do. Mm-hmm. All right, mm-hmm. fine. And that was it. It was the only thing he posted in like, the last time I talked to him was the end of January. And this was, you know, the late March. Uh, actually, no, it was April. It was already April. Mid-April. So uh, a friend of his, you know, that I know, was old friend of his, and not as old as me, but closer. You know, somebody that he was really, like, in tight with. And the last time he was out this way, he got him a whole bunch of gigs and comedy shit. And he's hanging out at his house and whatever the hell else. Okay, fine. He's like, yeah, have you heard from him? I'm like, no. It's like, the last time I heard from him was this, and I told him what he said and what was going on. And He's got a whole situation there that's really bad. You know, it's, it's not even worth getting into, like I said, it's personal okay. business, but okay. Uh, he's basically in a lot of trouble, not not with the law, but just, you know, in life. He's got problems here, and I don't know how easily it's going to be for him to get back on his feet at this point. But he's trying, I think. The point is, he kind of vanished, and he's like, I haven't heard from him. You haven't heard from him. Other people in the comedy industry that he talks to haven't heard from him. So apparently his family was in the dark, you know, what's left of them. Not that they were, you know, close ever anyway, but, you know, he's like, nobody fucking knows what's going on. Is he still okay? Because apparently, as they continue to research, this went on for several days, it's like, oh, you know, somebody reported a backpack of his, which is, at this point, like, most of his belongings, I guess. Mm-hmm. And all his stuff was in it, you know, like... I don't know what the hell, medications, all kinds of shit. And somebody, quote, found it and reported it to the cops where he's at now. Oh. So we're like, oh, shit, that doesn't sound good. And then he's like, okay, well, let me try his old cell phone, because, you know, whatever, because he couldn't get through it. All of a sudden, some guy picks up, and it's some Spanish guy. And he, like, hung up the phone real fast after, you know, Paul's talking to him. And we're like, 
so wait a minute. So somebody, and they're like, oh, he was last seen with this person that he was talking to, but she wanted to stay away from her because he knew she was like a meth head. And I'm like, oh, shit, what kind oh, of stuff happened? You know, right, we're really yeah. concerned here. It's like either somebody got kidnapped or somebody robbed them or, you know, he's laying dead on a highway somewhere. Plus, you know, he's in a bad situation. He's always kind of, he's not just Italian because, you know, how we all get like dramatic, right? But he's a really a, a drama queen and whatever the hell else. So we're like, mm. oh, shit, maybe he just, you know, who knows? tried to off himself, you know, wander off into the desert, threw his stuff away, and, you know, who knows what's going on? I don't know. And we're all kind of throwing theories back and forth. I don't know what's going on. Everybody's trying to... People are calling uh, police departments, literally. They've uh -huh. got reports in on them. They're looking for them. They're calling, like, shelters. They're calling hospitals. People are offering to... Oh, he sent out a whole bunch of flyers he made out looking for them and canvassed all these places and said, just pass them around to your staff, you know, post them. They had somebody that would volunteer to go down to where he's at, you know, a different state, basically, and uh, just walk the streets, you know, looking for him, asking people. So it was that level of, oh, my God, what happened here? And it turned out that it was, as far as we figure, you know, those of us who were involved with this, you know, the people that were close to him, it was a whole big load of shit. We think that this was his Hail Mary play to get not only people to take going because he's always looking for like oh who really cares about me you know post like cryptic shit all the time and i'm like he's, he's waiting for people to come say oh what do you mean are you okay you know whatever. so it's like a cry for help yes though. exactly that's what it was but you know beyond whatever else is going on that's what it came down to and we found them and there's all of a sudden you know like paul had posted a picture of him and said look this is where he's at he actually found them because he had a doctor's appointment and he like got a call somehow. The doctor called him. It's like a Mexican or something saying, oh, can you come pick him up? I, was like, I can't pick him up. I'm like, you know, have a great across the country. But, you know, they gave us the cooler. Where the hell is that? He's like, well, I don't know anything else, but I know where he's going to be on this certain date because that was getting the operation. It all comes down to like, you know, a load of shit. So in the meantime, we're all talking about this. Like, I can't believe this. And that was pretty much everyone's reaction. I was like, well, I guess I'm glad he's OK, but what the fuck? Really? This is all just bullshit? And then they're, like, saying, well, you know, it sounds like he just killed somebody else. Like, here, you know, I don't know why the hell the backpack got cold. I don't know what the deal is with that. But, you know, he told somebody else, here, hold my phone, and you answer for me. And, you know, whatever. Pretend I'm not there. This is like a ploy to, like, get people to pay attention or something. I don't know. what get sympathy, get money. I don't know what he's trying to do. And it all oh, sounds this, insane. Yeah. This is, like, really oddly similar to that lady I told you about. Remember this? Yes, like, I do remember. You talking about the desperate woman that was, yeah. Yeah. So that's what we figure it was. And then, like, I had been cryptically posting stuff about, like, geez, right. you know, you think you know somebody. Because when we got on the call, somebody's like, oh, we should bring in his ex-wife. And I'm like, I don't know. Because, you know, she was, as far as we knew, and I always said this, oh, yeah, well, she was, like, a major part of his downfall in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, she kind of precipitated the move, and she got sick then, which was not her fault. But, you know, then she didn't have a job, and he had, didn't have a job all of a sudden, when he was supposed to, and there was a lot of shit that went down. Well, it turns out, and of course, you know, they're separated and whatever the hell else after this. It turns out that she told her side of the story, and, you know, I know that, you know, people always have different perspectives, and people have, okay, I'm, I'm going to defend myself versus the other person. You know how it is. Everybody's the hero of their own story. Mm -hmm. I get that. But listening to what she said, things started to add up, and I was like, holy shit it's like you know i gotta apologize to you because i had believed this stuff i had said this stuff to other people you know that this is what happened this is why and it turns out that pretty much it looks like everything that he had ever told me from that whole period mm -hmm. was 
inverse. It wasn't just like, okay, I'm covering my ass. Okay, I'm making myself tough batter. It was like, no, wait. I think he was the asshole. And she was just like, you know, whatever. And she was actually probably putting up with a lot of crap. And I was just like, wait a minute. So all this stuff, all the stuff he told us was lies. All the stuff he was doing was bullshit. You're... There's this whole big thing that people listen to the old show will hear him going on about what he was going to do, his next big venture. Mm. And it turns out that you know, he just, not only did he fuck it up, but then it was all just horse shit so that he can go lay around and smoke weed all day with some other guy who was like living in a parking lot or some shit. I mean, it's just, it was all crazy, crazy shit that I'm not going to get into. And all of it was like, oh, wow, that's what that was. Oh, that makes sense. Because it didn't make sense before. You know, the way he told it and the way I knew it, it was like, why did that? I don't get this. Well, I know you're lazy. I know you're, you know, in air sign and all this kind of stuff. You're a dreamer, but holy shit. So that's what it all came down to. And I was like, wow. Uh-huh. And then he has the balls after all this because, you know, nobody really said anything directly. We're just kind of like minor business. Like, oh, I can't fucking believe this. He goes online, posts his stuff like, okay, this is it. There's one thing I'm going to post. You know, here's my picture and I'm okay and I'm getting this, you know, operation done or whatever the hell. And, you know, if you guys don't like whatever the hell or you're annoyed at me, then go have a nice life. And we're like, holy shit. Because, you know, the only people that were saying, yeah, okay, I'm glad to hear you good, were people that were not involved in this whole thing. Mm. Everybody that was involved in this thing, he basically just told us, yeah, go fuck yourselves. Like, really? After all this? Because, you know, literally, he's a close friend of mine. He's an old friend of mine. I'm up, like, you know, having nightmares and shit and worried about this guy. I was like, I felt like a parent for the first time. Like, this is crazy. And this is going on for a couple of days, remember? And then we got this. Oh, I, t- I, I totally understand this. You know, it's the only recent experience I have with this uh, this person that I, I knew I thought. <laughs> yeah, right. This exactly. person that I knew I thought fairly well. And then I stopped talking to her, and then she tried to be nice to me. So I'm sorry. Okay, let me stop being a dick. I'll try to be nice to you. Yeah. You know, I, I went to work for the, lo- the nearest library Okay. Yeah, well, you know, you just can't walk in and say, I want to work in your library. you got to have <laughs> I worked in a library for fucking years, you know. Try to be helpful. I didn't know, you know. Like, I never said, well, what kind of work did you do, you know, right? Yeah. So, you know, her mother was very ill, and she lived in the house with her mother. I've seen the house. She drove me past it. Nice house. Big house. And, you know, the mother got ill, in and out of the hospitals, blah, blah, blah. Oh, my mother did a reverse mortgage, which I had her research because I know what the fuck that meant. Why am I doing this yeah. anyway? Yeah. I said, you know what? Uh, here's some pro bono lawyers that work near you. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're free. Yeah. Social worker numbers. Here's social worker numbers. Mm-hmm. Welfare. Mm-hmm. Welfare. And she never bothered to call any of these people. Her mother got progressively ill, was in a, a number of nursing homes, hospitals. She eventually passed. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And she's freaking out, and then she loses her voice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then she can't eat. She can't. She claims. She claimed she couldn't swallow food. She was losing weight dramatically. Then the last thing was she couldn't talk or see. It's like Tommy. <laughs> so, so I know a guy also from Chiller, who not only is a good guy. He he had issues. I know him for a long time. He's now one of those people that, like, oh, I forgot what it's called. You know, he helps you when you have problems, like addiction problems or health, pro- mental health problems. Okay, yeah. I called him up. I said, you know this, this lady. Can you talk to her? Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, yeah. I saw some of her posts. Uh, I said, because I actually talked to her. Mm-hmm. She started texting me. Can you call me? Can you call me? And I would talk to her. 
And then sometimes my wife is around and said, you know, I told my wife about her, you know, you know, like that my friend's fucking nuts. <laughs> and I'm not going to talk to her with her around because it's too awkward, you know? Yeah, yeah, I got it. So, you know, one time I said, I can't. No, I'll call you in two days. And you didn't call me right away. Oh, my God. So this guy did a GoFundMe that we all share. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she's going to be kicked out of her house because of the reverse mortgage. I get it. I sent her a bunch of stuff. She never acted on it, whatever reason. So she ends up in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Another friend had the cops pick her up. She was sent to psychiatric hospitals a couple of times mm-hmm. because they wanted to evaluate her. Is this stuff really something wrong with her? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. So I, he wouldn't answer my calls, this other guy. Mm-hmm. So I texted him. I messaged him, you know, text. And I, you know, I got his number. I texted him a couple of times. I'm like, Joe, what's going on? Blah, 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 blah. Last time I talked to her was in January. And that's what? It's almost six months ago. Yeah. It was the same shit. It was New Year's Eve. And she kept saying this lady, this lady's mutual friend who I knew, you know, talked to her. So I don't have her number, but we're friends. So I messaged her. I said, look, I know it's New Year's Eve. Call me when you can. Right? Yeah. She did immediately. What's going on? I said, I just talked to her for like an hour. And, you know, I just need to talk to somebody else. But she said she just talked to you. <laughs> wow. Now, you like your friend, Matt? Yeah. yeah. Another unloading of truths. Yeah. Not, not only did this lady know every single thing I said to her and she said to me, mm-hmm. she told me she never had a boyfriend. <laughs> she claimed she had this boyfriend. Mm-hmm. She said she met this guy online. He lived in Jersey City. He was from England. He was here briefly. Yeah. But that wasn't a boyfriend. I'm like, how do you even know about it? I'm not even ask. And then she said she just lies and lies and lies in fantasy life and makes up shit. Yeah, that's kind of what this was. It was made up, but it was like, he's just lying like crazy. And turning embellishments, around. embellishments. Yeah. yeah. So it was like all this shit that I thought I knew. It was like, no. <laughs> I was like, really? That's, I'm, I'm annoyed. Yeah. I know she needs help, but so she told you, and this lady was telling me stuff that I told this other person. I'm like, wow, she really told you. <laughs> I'm like, that's not cool. Wow. You know, and and yeah, you know, we went to lunch one time. She told this person told me where I went to lunch with her in Nyack. <laughs> I'm like, really? You know, I'm like, oh Jesus. You know. <laughs> And at, by the end of that, and that was, a, you know, it was New Year's Eve. She goes, it's okay. My boyfriend is outside with all those Mexican friends in the party. You know, his family was over. I said, I'm so sorry. It wasn't my intent to, you know, drag you. But I know this person talked to you. And, and you know, I just need to bounce off. Yeah. So about uh, early March, the guy who never answered my calls except occasionally or texts, so can you call her? I said, she's got my number, but I'm not going to call her. He's like, why? I said, I don't want to talk to her. <laughs> I'm done. I'm, I'm removing myself from this whole thing. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of where we're all at at this point. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, because she has a Facebook page, she popped up on there, you know, just doing a Tommy bit. I still can't see. I'm going to lose my house. She reposted the guys, you know, the, the GoFundMe. Yeah. I thought that was brazen. Yeah. You know, but if you want to help me out, my friend set this up for me. I'm like, that's kind of faulty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's still active, but they already went over the numbers. Yeah. But I guess you can. Yeah, you can do that if you still want to give you money for it, but yeah. 
But I'm like, that, 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 that was fucking balls of steel. It is. I, I saw that. I'm like, come on. Yeah, that's exactly what it comes down to. It's like, holy shit, fucking blatant, ongoing, endless. And that's what the wife kept saying. It's like the endless lies, this web. My job is now eaten by another company, by another company, by another company. We now have to do something at the end of the day called Harvest. Okay. Which we have to log. It's a website. Log in and say what we've done throughout the day and how much time we spent on each thing. Oh, fuck. I hated that. Yes, we had something similar. You're right. You could start a timer, mm-hmm. but you could just go in at the end of the day. Say, I spent 45 minutes doing this, an hour and a half doing this, mm-hmm. and it equals up to, you know, some older lady I worked with was freaking out because if I start the timer, how do I end it? And like, no, no, no. Just go in. Don't start the timer. Just put in your work an hour and 10 minutes, and it's 45 yeah. minutes. But they were like, first they said, oh, you, you could do it once a week, or you could do it every other week. And they're like, no, you have to do it daily. That's crazy. It's a project management thing, but why the hell would you need to do it daily? And then they sent out this, they had a video session. The original query was, if you can't make it, because we're working for the customer, the client, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> there'll be two more, or there'll be a video you can watch. Okay. okay. Lewis, you did not attend us. I'm like, yeah, I declined. Yeah. So I had to watch the video, and the lady's like, I'm getting feedback. Can you hear me? Uh, can anyone hear me? I'm like, what the fuck? You're so unprofessional, these idiots. Unbelievable. So I'm like, all right, there's a PDF version of that, uh, the takeaways. So I printed that out. Last weekend, I go over it with a highlighter. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. So I called up my... Really, on the phone, I called up my uh, project manager with this bozo company on Monday afternoon because she's out in Seattle. I figure she's, and she was like, uh, hello? It's Lewis, Lewis Ball. You know, I fucking work for you. <laughs> Can you take me, walk me through this? Yeah. Because I don't know what I'm doing, and there's nothing clear about it. I have an email from her saying you don't have to do it daily. Said, I have to do this daily, right? Oh, yes. I'm like, fucking, everybody's got a changing story. So, yeah, that's... Prior to that, I could not sleep well, knowing that this was going to happen. Yeah. But I figured out, you know what? I'll just figure it out. You know. Yeah. It's it's the way to, the way things are now. You know, they they want you to account for all your time. Yep. It's total horseshit, but yeah. Totally horseshit. Now the other thing I got to say is, so I don't know why he said it was going. I think this is going to be the last time I'm going to be there. Mm-hmm. This weekend. So, yeah, you're not working there, right? You're just going. Right. So a couple of weeks ago, less than a month ago, I called him. You know who? Yes. And I said, hey, hi. Oh, I haven't called you because we're not doing that. He said at the time, you know, the fire marshals are very much more strict now. We have to close some rooms. Mm-hmm. We can't have those crowds. I said, I get that. Okay, fine. But are you coming? I'll get your room. Oh, that's very nice of you. Okay, yeah. I better have a room there or I'm getting on a shuttle and going back to the train station. Here's what I saw this morning. Usually they post on the Facebook page the rooms where people are. They didn't. They, they posted on their web page. So he told me the room I was in before will be closed to not have so much foot traffic. He put Mike Love in there. Yeah, yeah. From the Beach Boys. Across from that room is the photo ops room. Do you know how crazy that hallway is going to be? Uh-huh. What is he even thinking? People are going to be online for the photo ops and a huge line for the guy from the Beach Boys, mm-hmm. who's probably the biggest name there. And uh, I don't remember uh, how insane it was with Romero and Face Freely. Like, holy shit, you can get through these tiny hallways. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, 
I last time I was there, everybody was coming up. Not everybody, but number of people. I heard the last show here. Heard that where are we going? I'm like, I don't know. I've not heard this. I tried to inquire, but you don't want to hard inquire. And so I see we're still there. And you know, but it's in the middle of fucking the road. We're supposed to have huge rain Saturday and Sunday, which is going to impact the crowds. People are going to say, I paid for a ticket, but I'm not going. Mm-hmm. Because they're going to have to stand in windswept rain. Yep. I'm like, why did I say it was going? <laughs> <laughs> My wife was like, why is he going? He's not working there. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> hey, look, you know, I, less and less I go, I've gone, and I'm like, been so disappointed because people I want to see are charging so much money. It's out of hand. Yep. It's out of hand. And, and. We've got really crummy guests. If if I wasn't associated with the show, I would post shit like, who the fuck are these people? <laughs> they added some girl yesterday because Tia Carrera pulled out doing filming commitments. I'm sorry. I'm not stupid. If you're an actress and you have a contract for a film, you know when you're going to do a film well in advance. You just pulled out. Yep. Filming commitments is a way for them to have like a... It's an excuse. It's a catch all excuse. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you want your I don't want to go to this fucking thing. Oh, yeah, I'm busy filming stuff. Yeah, yeah right. But then, <laughs> it's like when they get the washed up actors on TV and they do like a talk show. I'm like, oh, I have other projects. I have lots of projects I'm working on. They don't tell you what they are. <laughs> right, right. But I'm saying, like, you know, so let's, let's say it. it could be possible. Some people bought a ticket to see Tia, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And then they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? Well, I noticed they did that a lot. A lot of people pull out last minute, but still, you know, they had a lot of people. So I was like, well, all right. So I missed one or two people I really came to see, but I still got these other five. So yeah, but they they they, they just they're pulling out left and right. But I don't know. But uh, but as I said, the weather's gonna be crappy this weekend. Hopefully, not rain tomorrow, so I can get there for a reasonable price. And you know what? I'll see some friends. A lot a lot of people are going that I know. All right, that is what it is. Um, he said he'd get me a room, and if I get there and there's no room, I'm going to call my wife and say I'm coming back tonight, because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll find a way to get back uh, at not the cost it took me to get there. Well, in a way, I'm looking forward to hearing about this next time we do the Hugh Grant show. <laughs> yeah, um, my back's been bothering me, too, and um, because I, you know, I'm sitting over this desk more often, too, like the angina, the... Uh, the esophageal stuff because I, I have to train myself not to lean forward too much. Right. Don't worry, right now I'm leaning back. Sure. Yeah, I was going to say. But uh, there's, I guess, so much shit going on. Oh, and <laughs> one last thing. It's okay. I don't, I don't care how long the show runs. I hope your wife doesn't get mad. Yeah. One last thing. So I had all these medications that were supposed to be refilled that I'm on. Mm-hmm. But my, as of April, one, my, my my United Healthcare cut off. Okay. I go, I go over to Walgreens and say, like, don't accept these things. Don't refill these things. So stop fucking calling me <laughs> because I have Aetna now and I have to go to CVS in Hoboken because there's no CVS in Jersey City. Okay. Wow. They, didn't, they didn't do what they were supposed to. So my doctor filled it for Walgreens. I'm like, no. <laughs> I had to contact the doctor, like, very why nitly, this is what you have to do. I have this now. I uploaded my new card. Mm-hmm. So I went down to Hoboken last week, and they were actually cheaper with Aetna than they were over U.S. Healthcare. Go figure. Yeah. Okay. They're used to, supposed to be a shitty healthcare. Who knows? Oh, just I so you know, I just told Walgreens. my wife, she says, it's okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry. 
Walgreens is cold calling me all week now. For what? Your prescriptions are ready. I'm like, I'm not even, I'm just <laughs> fucking, I'm going to yeah, walk. Yeah, as well. I'm like, I told you, I went there myself, personally. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I know. Ever since my, first it was my uh, last job was giving us crap. And then the drugstore that I was going to, it's like, I'm always, I've always been about buying local. You know, the, I know Matt goes on about the chill yeah. all the time, but I've done this for decades. You know, I was in authority of any sort to, you know, order something or get something. I never went to like, oh, let's go to FTD or let's go to Amazon. I would always go to like the cheapy local, whoever the hells they are, even if it's a little more money, just yeah. to, you know, spring up, give some money to those people. Well, I was going to one of these indie drugstores, and I've been going there actually since I was a kid, because you know, even though I moved to different towns and shit, I'd still, okay, well, I'd go travel a town or two over and still have my stuff with them. Okay. And they changed hands a couple times, but it was still basically the same place. They finally went under. So this is you know, a couple of years back. Maybe, who knows, actually a lot of years back now, but it, relatively in the, in the scheme of things, it wasn't that long ago. But we had to wind up a freaking CVS, and I'll tell you, even my doctors complain about CVS because they just are so fucking bad. But it's like, what's your choices? Because now you got that, you got Walmart, you got Walgreens, maybe. I think Rite Aid might even be under, or one or the other. I think one of them bought the other one out. And, mm. you know, what's left? You know, the, I don't know, the supermarket pharmacy? There's nothing left. So, well, the guy told me at Walgreens, the pharmacist, said, well, yeah, we'll accept them, but you're going to have to pay full price. What do you what? mean you'll accept them? Well, yeah, accept them no. mean what? If you're not paying, you know, if you're not doing what you're supposed to do and you get a copay or free. Because so Aetna says they'd use Caremark for mail order and CVS Caremark for the store. So the only one actively existing in Jersey City is in a Target, which is two blocks from Hoboken. <laughs> and that one's hours are infrequent and the reviews are terrible. Yeah. So I'm like, I'll go two blocks away in Hoboken proper. And I went there to get my last uh, COVID shot. And I remember it being a decent store. It's like a supermarket, too. It's like clean. It's like one of the, I would say it's an A-plus store. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went I went there uh, Sunday morning, uh, Saturday morning, uh, afternoon. And I was like, oh, this is this was a pleasant experience. <laughs> so I was like, fine. Where I fucked up my stomach on eat, having a Bloody Mary. Uh-oh, yeah. Yeah, remember that picture I posted? Yes. Yeah, I, I said, oh, it's a Mexican place there. And I didn't the menu. They was like, scan the thing. Just give me one. But no, okay. <laughs> and I asked for a fish taco. Now you remember. Right, you got the sashimi one instead. <laughs> and so there's two hot Korean girls sitting next to me. Mm. I didn't want to be a pervy old guy. I'm like, hi. You know? <laughs> and one said, I think one was butchy. Okay. And she goes, what is, what is that? Because they brought it. I said, I don't know. It looks like sliced tuna on lettuce. <laughs> it's not what I ordered. So I told her, I ordered that. I'll get that. They brought her what I ordered. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what is that? That's what you said you got. I said, that's what I wanted. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so, but I tell you, that night, yeah, I wasn't doing too well. <laughs> So was it from the bad food and the shitty whatever, or was it from the Bloody Mary? It was probably the Bloody Mary and the um, it, it wasn't. It was a few slices of tuna, no nothing on lettuce. Yeah. So I said to the guy, "Let me get a guac sampler for eleven bucks." There's three small, different guacamole things they have. They make in house. Okay. He goes, "This one's a little mildly spicy." No, it was very salty, and you know, I probably kicked up my salt. Uh, no, yeah. I don't do salt, and I was like, "Okay." Say my father's big drink was the Bloody Mary in the last, you know, yo many years of his life. 
And technically, his big thing was like, oh, well, you know, it's tomatoes, so it's good for it's good for your prostate, it's good for whatever else. But I don't, I can't do tomato juice. Once every two or three years, I have one, and then it reminds me <laughs> why I don't. All right. You want to listen to this? Yeah, I'll go listen uh, back to this and make sure it's cool. No, not the whole thing. No, it's crazy to be here forever. <laughs> All right, let me know. Okay. 